I'm Kyle. And I'm Trevor. And welcome to Catching Up on Cinema. If you aren't familiar with the program, Catching Up on Cinema is a film analysis podcast wherein we introduce each other to films, expand our cinematic horizons, and, in essence, catch up on our cinema. So, it is the month of March 2021, and it is time for our event month, March of the Monsters. Essentially, what we're going to be doing this month is uh, taking advantage of our HBO Max subscriptions, more than likely, uh, to watch Godzilla vs. Kong, which uh, drops March 31st. Uh, hopefully, we'll be getting a review out for that uh, pretty much ASAP. Yeah. Uh, but in the meantime, uh, we're going to be taking advantage of you know all the media hype and whatnot and explore the filmographies of the two stars of that film. So that would be King Kong and Godzilla. Uh, so it, I felt it would be appropriate uh, to start off March of the Monsters um, with the film that came in the earliest in the chronology of both of these characters, and that would, of course, be King Kong from 1933, uh, directed by Marion C. Cooper and Ernest B. Shodisak. Uh, man, don't you miss that, Kyle? Back in the day when everybody had a middle initial that they you know, used in daily speech and stuff? Yeah, <laughs> it was a different very, world. Very thorough back then. Yeah, they're very thorough. Uh, there weren't a whole lot of abbreviations, <laughs> uh, not a whole lot of contractions. Um, but yeah, uh, this film uh, is massively historically significant. As uh, it essentially gave birth to an entire genre of film that would be um, the monster run amok, or at least the giant monster run amok. Um, and it needs like. It can't be emphasized enough. This came out in 1933. It was groundbreaking shit. Um, it was massively successful at the box office, and the cultural footprint of of the character of Kong is is Titanic stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, like like I was telling you before we started recording, this is one of those movies that you don't honestly have to see in order to know almost everything about it. It's just so ingrained in at least American pop culture, and I want to say even international pop culture. Um, he's just such an icon, and there's so many images and concepts uh, from this film that find their way into the work of others. This film has inspired countless uh, really, really incredible filmmakers. But um, needs to be said, both Kyle and I are revisiting this film. This is this is not a catching up, like a proper catching up on cinema, but um, this is the first time either of us has really talked about this film at length. So um, I think both of us actually enjoyed this film uh, more on the, upon viewing it most recently than we did um, back in the day. Um, mm-hmm. I know I know I had some issues with it with, uh, when I was younger, and I know you had told me you were much the same, but this time around I had a grand old time with it. I did too, yeah. Yeah, um, and probably the biggest star of the show, I mean, we'll, we'll get to the cast as we get to them, but probably the biggest star of the show um, is uh, Willis O'Brien, um, who was, of course, the stop-motion animator who gave us most of the visual effects in this film and of which there are innumerable shots mm-hmm. uh, it was kind of amazing actually just the sheer volume of visual effects work in this film it's a lot like, yeah like this movie is like 60 percent visual effects that's nuts and it's mostly done by one dude and probably a, a couple of assistants or something and just the probably years i don't know how many months or years it took this man to to complete this film but um Virtually every theatrical, uh, like stop motion film uh, that came out uh, in this era and beyond, so like into the Ray Harryhausen era and stuff, uh, 
these guys would end up investing like years of their lives just just doing the visual effects for a single film it's nuts the time investment and the patience uh, required to do this work um what what are your feelings on stop motion kyle because this is something that for me personally it's like i i've kind of been enamored with the art form my whole life like just somehow i fell ass backwards into it and i've always had a lot of passion for it but i'm curious how you feel about it well i feel like we maybe you had exposure to it before i did but i feel like because of like james and the giant peach and uh uh nightmare before christmas that that kind of stop motion was very was like present when we were kids so that kind of sparked my interest in it uh and then as i got a little older you see it pop up uh, uh Coraline, which is awesome uh i haven't seen was it kubo and the two strings yeah um comes up in the evil dead evil dead 2 uh i just find it charming and it you're tr- you're you're working with what you got at the time and in retrospect i mean if you look at it now it just doesn't look very good but you can't look at it with that kind of lens. It's kind of like special effects. Like you can't judge Mortal Kombat too too bad. Like, you're like let's think about let's take let's leave this in perspective, guys. Okay, <laughs> let's think about the time. All right, let's not be too harsh. Um, but I actually one of the earliest things I remember seeing, and I was pulling it up right now. Uh, I wanted to make sure I got the the right one. Um, there's a director who I have his uh, his Criterion uh, release. It's three of his films. Uh, the director is Carol Zeman. And uh, Journey to... Uh, I didn't know what the, the name of the movie was for the longest time. It's A Journey to the Beginning of Time. And it is... Uh, I haven't even got to rewatch it yet. But I, I saw it very when I was very, very young. And it's a, stop, like a lot of stop motion. And it's dinosaurs. And I just recently found it, and I'm excited to revisit it. But um, I think that was probably the first thing I ever saw was uh, Carol Zeman. And like I said, I just find it very charming. And uh, the the amount of time and effort that goes into it, like I can't even imagine what it's like. Yeah, I, it's it's kind of nuts actually. Like this this seems to be a common thing with like my appreciation for for art and across multiple mediums. It's like I I like things that. Um, the the end product is representative of how much effort you put into it where it's like sometimes sometimes like like talent and things of that nature aren't the aren't the most important thing sometimes it's more just like a measure of like just how much of yourself you're willing to put into something um and stop motion can can offer that um i was exposed to stop motion pretty much since the cradle like there was a, a vhs tape that both my brother and i wore the fuck out um it was so I don't remember the title exactly, but it was about dinosaurs, and it starred Fred Savage, <laughs> um, like in his Wonder Years phase. Like he was in the, he was in the thick of it. Like he, this was when Fred Savage was on top of the world. But this was like a direct-to-video dinosaurs uh, video uh, that was like a mixed medium thing. It it had like kind of a Pee Wee Herman vibe to it, which which makes sense. Pee Wee Herman made use of stop motion and miniatures and stuff. Uh, but it made a lot of it made extensive use of claymation so like mm. specifically stop motion uh, using the manipulation of like clay figures and stuff dinosaurs um, it was just called dinosaurs with yeah. an exclamation point okay yeah, yeah that, that was it that's totally it then that's why i remember and uh yeah it, it featured a whole bunch of claymation and i i always remember like being like really impressed with the way that that looked it had a really fun vibe i think stop motion and claymation just universally 
work for kids in particular. I was going to say, Celebrity Deathmatch was another one of those things. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, Loved in terms it. of claymation, that was that was a big one for mainstream audiences because um, I don't know how many episodes of that they produced. but I think uh, maybe two seasons worth. Like, it wasn't a very long-running show. It went long enough to get a PS2 game, I'll tell you that much. Oh, shit, <laughs> I did not know that. Yeah, and it was also, I think, an instance where it was like a small segment of a of a broader show um kind of like how the simpsons started out it's just like a, a tag on to a, a different show and and then i think eventually they gave it its own like half hour episodes like its own show but yeah it lasted long enough to get a video game um and it also lasted long enough to the point that they started incorporating like more computer effects into the animation and stuff so i uh, it's not a show i'd be in a hurry to revisit but i did no. watch the hell out of it um I did, especially yeah. I did, in fact, get hyped for when uh, they did the uh, Tyson and Holyfield episode. Um, that that just tells you how big that event was, um, not just for the boxing world, but for just pop culture in general. Like, Celebrity Deathmatch did a rendition of that, and it was pretty fucking fun. <laughs> Um, I'd say Robot Chicken also. I've def- I've seen quite a bit of Robot Chicken, and it's still really funny. Like, I, I when, the, when little clips pop up, I, I usually really enjoy them. Oh yeah, Robot Chicken is wonderful stuff. I mean, mm-hmm. the the animation even like it it's not like on a technical level the most advanced shit you'll ever see, but the amount of personality they put into like the movements and the body language of their figures, mm-hmm. like they have talented people working on that. They do, and, yeah. Like you said, it's a it's a charming format. Like there's something about seeing it and like with that, it's not like computer animation where like there was like kind of a mystical quality when you were first seeing it where you're like I have no fucking clue how this is done or whereas like stop motion even from an early age like you're pretty you're pretty clear about what you're seeing yeah. like like i i actually taught myself how to do stop motion like I, I never did research into how to do it i just knew how because i did flip books when i was a kid i used to like uh draw in the corner of my notebook and then make a flip yeah, book during school and stuff yeah we all did yeah and so you take that same principle and you apply it to like an i had a I had a an Ian Malcolm, uh, the Lost World action figure uh, mm. that I nicknamed Pimp Master. That was and I prob- used to <laughs> was he like crazy buff, like not even to like Jeff Goldblum standards. Like he was he just like crazy built. Yeah, he was he was he was pretty buff. He had the cowboy boots. Um, oh, he nice. had the leather cowboy boots, and uh, he had driving gloves. And he's oh. you know, every, every version of that figure except for like one that had like a a chemical spray backpack or something every version of ian malcolm that you you could buy as a kid had sunglasses like just permanently molded into his head so he was and he had like the the elvis do like mm-hmm. he had the like the pompadour thing going. um yeah i i used to make stop motion animations of him beating up uh Pete Postlethwaite. <laughs> Damn, I would take Pete Postlethwaite in that. In that, so would I. Most of the time, uh, Ian Malcolm would, would defeat him. Jeff Goldblum rather would defeat him by running him over with his Mercedes. Yeah, <laughs> I can see that. Um, but yeah, I, I used to dabble in stop motion, and actually, there's a part of me that is like itching to get back into it at some point. Like, I, it's gonna happen. I, I just don't know when, but. Um, I I love stop motion. I I go nuts for it. And um, Willis O'Brien, uh, the fella that worked on King Kong, uh, was is often regarded as basically the the forerunner 
uh, for all of the like celebrity stop motion animators uh, that we've had in Hollywood history. So, like he was the the big one up front. Uh, stop motion existed before he started doing it, but um, he was the first one to do it for like feature films and stuff. So he he's he was the biggest name uh, mm-hmm. from this era. And then Ray Harryhausen would be his apprentice at one point and, of course, would become a legend unto himself um, and would carry the torch for decades. Um, but maybe, maybe like, one of, the, one of the most impressive talents among all of them was Phil Tippett, uh, who would come, I think, around the time Ray Harryhausen was just starting to peter out. And as far as I recall, I think Empire Strikes Back may have been, like, his first big uh, feature film work. Ooh. Um, he, he animated... Uh, like the Tauntauns and the ATATs and, they, mm-hmm. and the, the one ATST that they just put in there for some reason. <laughs> um, and it, he, he went on to have a legacy unto his, unto himself. And I've always thought he was one of the most impressive talents. I mean, our opinions on star Wars aside, the Hoth battle is the best. That's the best star thing from star Wars. In my opinion, just anything on Hoth. That's the best. Yeah, as a kid, that was the sequence I watched the most. Um, just the Hoth portion, and then the rest of it, I'd like you know get distracted, start playing with action figures and stuff, and then you know look up whenever a lightsaber got turned on. But in the me- in the meantime, it's like you know he's in the swamp still. Like, yeah, I, I know you don't come back anymore. till clouds. You don't come back till clouds. When it goes Hoth, uh, that comet monster thing, uh, uh, what do they call Minoc? You get the Minoc and then Billy D. Williams. That's when you come back in. Is when Billy D. Williams is on screen. Yeah. yeah, basically. I mean, as a kid, anyway. Now, now the whole film I can appreciate, but as a child, yeah, Hoth was where it was at, yeah. and Phil Phil Tippett and the other stop motion animators working on the set for that film, uh, they put in some serious work. And uh, it needs to be said, the technical innovations that came about during his era. In fact, I think under under his watchful eye, like I think he innovated this shit. Um, were massive for stop motion. Um, there's there's a whole bunch of buzzwords that get used in stop motion, and one of them is a uh, I think it's go motion. Um, basically, uh, Star Wars uh, the first one, like A New Hope. Uh, I think the the I think John Dykstra uh, innovated it. It was the uh, it was the computer controlled camera, so a motion control camera. So basically, what you have is you have a camera rig that performs a, a highly coordinated camera movement. So like some form of co- camera choreography, be it a, a zoom or a pan or what have, or a tilt. Um, but it's com- it's computer guided, so you can replicate it precisely over and over and over again. So when it comes to stop motion animation, what that brings to the table now is you can coordinate a cinematic camera movement with the timing of the animation of the figure. and if a mistake is made or something, you just hit the back key on the computer twice and the camera resets to where you need it to be exactly. Nice. So there's no potential for human error. So it makes it much more exact. Um, whereas in like Harry Housen or in Willis O'Brien's day, and you can see this yeah. evidenced by the way King Kong is shot. Almost every time Kong is on camera, camera's locked down. It's not moving uh, because we're doing a lot of complicated mats and whatnot. And coordinating the motion of the figures with the stop motion elements just was not possible at the time. But in Phil in Phil Tippett's day, they started to be able to do shit like that, where they could do like um, 
the snow speeder shots with the AT-ATs where they're like swooping over them when we get like a cockpit view mm-hmm. and and you can see the thing walking at the same time yeah like that's why I say Phil Tippett like his contributions to the art form were just like fuck dude <laughs> like that this is game changing shit <laughs> but um Anyway, we're starting to get into the weeds here, but uh, it, it <laughs> <Early>. needs, <laughs> just a little bit. But it needs to be said that right now, I want to say that like guys like Henry Selleck and the the just Leica Studios in general uh, seem to be carrying the torch these days. Like, I I don't know everything there is to know about stop motion, but I I just named essentially the the four kings yeah. of the format, um, and Leica Studios is all the technical innovations that I've just run over in the past 10 minutes, um, they've contributed in equal amount probably within the past two years. Like Kyle, without having seen it, just look up some of the behind the scenes details of the making of Kubo and the two strings. Um, because Holy fucking shit. Like they're, they're, they're kind of like jerking themselves off a little bit when they show these, these demo reels and whatnot. But some of the puppets they're working with, like one of them is the size of a room. It's, it's like literally the size of a gymnasium and, and it's suspended from like steel cables and stuff and they're stop motion animating this thing and it's like the most seamless, most beautiful stop motion you can imagine. Uh, it's, it's fucking nuts. Um, but anyway, uh, let's get back into King Kong. Uh, so this came out in 1933 and as I said, it was directed by Marion C. Cooper and Ernest B. Shodzak. Um, it was also produced by both of them and the story, in fact... Um, was presented by Marion C. Cooper himself, who was uh, kind of a equivalent to the Carl Denham character in this movie. Um, you you could say that it's like the Larry David and the George Costanza effect, ah. where, where, you, where it's like uh, this is the on-screen equivalent of the person making the product. Um, he was known to be kind of an adventurer, and like I don't know if he's a big game hunter, but he liked to go on safari. Ah. We all know George is an idiot, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can't speak for Marion C. Cooper, but um, apparently he was a jet setter that liked to explore um, foreign locations and locales and whatnot. Uh, mm. And I think he was one of those fellows that was trying to get the most dangerous game off the ground. Um, one of those guys. So oh, more than gotcha. likely, more than likely, he did that in his own life on his own time at some point. And he was like, Probably. "Ah, shit! I forgot to bring a camera." <laughs> But yeah, uh, Kyle, uh, I, I know this isn't necessary, but would you like to give a plot rundown for King Kong? <laughs> yeah, uh, an ambitious filmmaker uh, hears about a remote island that is said to have something dangerous on it. Uh, he rallies a group and a woman suffering from Depression-era poverty uh, to star in a film with this creature. And the creature ends up coming back to the United States and wreaks havoc for about about two hours, I think, before they kill it. Uh, but yeah, that's what I've got. Yeah, no, I, like I said, it's not necessary because, like I said, it's King Kong. More than likely, y'all know the story. But yeah, that's essentially what it is. Although um, it is interesting that when they're headed to the island, um, they're not actually sure what they're what they're getting over Mm-mm. there. Uh, I, <laughs> it's like Mr. Denim. I'm pretty sure that's not how movies are made. You don't just bring a camera to the other side of the world and start shooting stuff and and hope that you can throw it together in post. 
Um, even George Lucas wasn't that brazen. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll fix it in post. It's, it's no big deal. Like, yeah. Jar Jar will come together. Trust me. That's a Werner Herzog <laughs> move. That's that's what Werner Herzog would do. He's like, I'm going to this remote island. We're going to find maybe something is there. That's something Herzog would do. We're going to, we're going to pile into the boat and sail to the other side of the world yeah. and find a giant ape. <laughs> Dude, yeah, yeah, that's exactly what Herzog would do. Uh, and, I mean, obviously, Klaus Kinski would be there for some reason, uh, screaming at people, chain-smoking, you know. The, oh, the Klaus Kinski versus a giant gorilla? Who wins? <laughs> I'm surprised that Herzog never tried to do That seems like something he would try to do. Like, like a, I can see him trying to do a, uh, a King Kong movie. Just for just to, just to do on location kind of stuff. Well, I mean the the man has a extraordinarily varied filmography. Yeah. Um, he he's he's up to accepting challenges. I mean, as evidenced by him eating a shoe. <laughs> but but um, yeah, actually, I mean, the man has made remakes before Nosferatu. Mm-hmm. Like he has that on his filmography, so he's not above re- revisiting the classics. Like that's not something that's beyond him. So you know. Maybe if the right person asked, he would have. I want to go back and watch Port of New Orleans, uh, the Bad Lieutenant. It's been a while since I've seen it. I want to revisit it. Oh, uh, Kyle, I just started uh, re-upping. Well, actually, I, I just started uh, getting back in the habit of uploading uh, our episodes to YouTube. And I actually just uploaded that one. So mm. you can find that on the YouTube channel now. It's a fun um, one. And I listened to a few minutes of it. And it was like a stroll down memory lane. <laughs> like I had a grand old time listening to that. Um, but yeah, our uh, principal players in this film uh, consist of, it's mostly like a power triangle of characters. Yeah. There's mostly three major players and then Kong, uh, who actually probably gets the most screen time. He does, honestly, yes. Uh, which is fucking awesome. <laughs> so uh, we have Fay Ray. Um, and by the way, I really love the character names. Like so- something about these character names. Like I don't know if it was the time or something, or just like spot on writing or something. But these character names are in- immensely memorable. Like yeah. they're, they're really yeah. easy, and they, they they snap off the tongue. They're fun, and they're really memorable. Like they just stick with you. Um, so we have Fay Ray uh, as Anne Darrow. Like I said, pretty fucking cool name. Uh, we have Robert Armstrong as Carl Denham, so that would be our filmmaker. And then we have <laughs> Bruce Cabot as John Jack Driscoll, uh, who is barely a character. And uh, Kyle, um, you had a good description of his uh, physique, like his, his visual presence on film. <laughs> yeah, he's just tall with a chin. Like, he's not even good looking. He just he just has a strong jaw. Yeah, he's not a good... He's, He's kind of fu- kind of fugly. <laughs> he's not. <laughs> I like. Yeah. Well, uh, I've this, there's trivia, uh, IMDb trivia. It said that when the director approached Fay Ray, saying that you're gonna you're gonna star next to the the biggest dark haired guy in uh, Hollywood at the time, or in Hollywood, and she thought it was gonna be Clark Gable, but it was you know King Kong. So yeah, like, why couldn't they get a handsome dude for this movie? <laughs> Well, I mean, this movie is like 60% visual effects, um, and I'm sure that costs money. Um, and, you know, you got to cut costs every every now and again. It may as well be downgrade from the very, very handsome Clark Gable to the not as handsome Bruce Cabot. <laughs> what, about, what if Errol Flynn was the uh, the lead? Oof. 
Oh, he would take control of the film, man. Oh, <laughs> like things would get out of hand. Where you you'd just like have to have like some dick measuring contest between him and the ape. Like yeah. he'd have to he'd have to drink the ape under the table or yeah. something <laughs> and win. Yeah. That's oh, that's how they would get him onto the ship instead of the smoke bombs. He'd just be like, hey. Gorilla. <laughs> yeah, but I feel like he'd be like Jack Sparrow, like, no, no, don't give him the rum. Like, don't. Daddy be... gets the Daddy gets the shakes. <laughs> it would be an outtake, but they'd leave it in the film. <laughs> it's like it's just a prop, Earl. Like, don't don't worry. Don't man. worry. You've got waste... <laughs> you've got a barrel of liquor on on the ship. You're gonna be fine, bro. Stop touching my wife. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm sure he. Did that a lot on the set yeah but, um but yeah bruce cabot is uh i don't even know if he's a very good actor because i caught some moments here well, and there where i was like i don't think he knows what was, he's doing <laughs> was anybody a good actor at this time like honestly like what we would measure as an actor today is not what for the time yeah he's doing totally fine i don't think he, he's doing that bad yeah it, i mean acting was a different art form altogether um one thing that you said before we started recording that is very important to keep in the back of your mind um when you're watching this film is that filmmaking had existed for exactly five minutes yeah um (laughs) by the time we got to this film Uh, so with words like films with words had had existed for what 10 years maybe yeah if that talkies hadn't been around that long so virtually everything you're seeing, just the art form itself, the medium of film is a is a form of visual effect to to a lot of folks watching it. Um, and this also translates to like the the acting, though, where because it was such a young format, a lot of actors were uh, a not only transitioning away from silent films, um, but B, they were also transitioning away from more than likely the stage, which is an altogether different style yeah. of acting. Um, and it results in a lot of performances often being very big yeah, and, and often being very confused as to like how to play best to the camera and such. Uh, it's never like glaring, like nobody yeah. looks like they're doing a straight up bad job in this movie. It's just, it's a different style of presentation that feels artificial, uh, in a way that, uh, we've trended extraordinarily far away from, especially in this day and age where like reality seems to always be the aim yeah. Um, where it's like we're trying to make movies but we're not letting people ex- like think of them as movies it's like well what's the fucking point well, <laughs> uh, <laughs> terry gilliam does not subscribe to that but yes i, I know what you mean uh, uh i was actually watching watching a clip from uh, the dick cavett show which by the way he's one of the worst interviewers i've ever seen he's awful watch some of his clips he's terrible Com- like compared to other late night hosts he's awful he, he mumbles he doesn't know what he's asking. Like he'll ask a question, but it's like, "What? What are you asking?" Uh, but Ian McKellen was on there, a young, uh, young Ian McKellen, and he was talking about the difference between acting in the theater and acting on film, which I thought was it was really interesting. It's like a six-minute clip, but uh, yeah, it, it's worth noting. Uh, one of the things he says is that when you're on stage, you have to be mindful of every part of your body because the audience can see every part of your body. So you can't be like twiddling your thumbs or doing something weird with your feet. You have to have total presence as opposed to film where you you know get away with some stuff. Yeah, no, that's really important to note because um, playing to the camera is a really important thing. And um, my favorite thing, like aside from apparently stop motion being as I just 
prattled on and on about for a half hour um, often involves like stunt work and stuff like that and oftentimes the way you best sell something to the camera in like fighting or, or stunt work uh, is to do everything contrary to how you would expect it to play out in real life where it's like wow um, lenses and lights uh, re- there's a lot of magic tricks that happen on the set that uh, we the audience often aren't privy to but yeah uh, that is really important to note that like from a performance standpoint it's it's a totally different beast whereas like uh, sometimes when you're doing just like a a close-up shot of one angle of your face or something like you said you could be like counting your quarters like oh shit do i have a bus for it to get home (laughs) (laughs) while you're doing like a dramatic facial expression or something over and over and over again because it's a fucking film (laughs) there were no cell phones in 1963 i'm head to toe legit um but yeah this film uh is uh preceded uh by an overture uh, so funny enough, the first five minutes of this film are nothing but just like an orchestra warming up, essentially. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> so like right off the bat, I was telling Kyle, it's like, oh shit, I get to shave five yeah. minutes off of the runtime for this bitch. Awesome, <laughs> shave that shit. Yeah, good stuff. Uh, so, so yeah, nothing happens in the first like four minutes. We just get uh, like uh, no- nothing oh. happens for the first twenty six minutes of this film. <laughs> hey 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 hey! Uh, you know, there's some like loose characterization that happens. Eh. <laughs> uh, so one thing that I I told Kyle before we started recording was inevitably going to come up as we talk about uh, this 1933 version of King Kong is uh, Peter Jackson's uh, 2005, I believe, uh, version, uh, also titled King Kong. Uh, 2003? I think it's 2003. I could be wrong, but keep going. Goddamn, that's early. Like, those those special effects look fantastic then, because uh, they still hold up, for the most part, aside from some of the green screen. Holy shit, that dinosaur stampede. Uh, those men are on treadmills. Uh, yeah, that is, Jack, <laughs> that is Jack Black on a treadmill in front of a green curtain. I'm sorry. Oh, you're right. It um, is 2005. That, sorry. I know my shit. <laughs> but, I thought it was earlier than that, yeah. No, um... That movie took a long time to make, and it was the making of it was more fun than the movie itself because Peter Jackson was very public about everything he was throwing into that film, and that was the film that uh, caused him to lose like twenty inches off of his waistline. Wow! Uh, because of stress and just time commitment. Um, but yeah, the the documentation of the making of that film, much like his his beloved Lord of the Rings trilogy, uh, is truly remarkable stuff. Like, he, he really was very candid about how they did everything to make the thing. And that's not something every filmmaker does. But um, what I'm getting at here is uh, in regards to the length and the structure of the film. Uh, so Peter Jackson's King Kong is about three hours long. Um, and it's almost exactly divided up into three chapters where it's one hour uh, in New York before Skull Island, one hour on Skull Island, and one hour back in New York after Skull Island. Um, and this film, oddly enough, follows a similar structure, although um, the back end of it's actually pretty rushed. Like, when we get back to New York, there actually is maybe 20, maybe 15 minutes left in the film. So it's not precisely divided up into three chapters, but it's kind of remarkable how it's like Peter Jackson did pay homage to the film in that regard um, and in so many other regards. Um, but it's definitely something that's probably going to come up in conversation here and there. So. Don't be surprised if that does, but I think it's funny that uh, Kong 33 begins like like a stage play. Um, so we have our overture, which may as well be like 
a theater experience, like a theater experience yeah. <laughs> um, where you have the overture playing, you have the orchestra warming up and then just like curtains. Uh, we don't have like a curtain opening or anything, but um, we get our full front credits because old timey movies do that. And actually yeah. I don't mind that. I kind of miss that to be honest. Um, I like, I like a good like proper opening credits. Um, like Christopher Nolan likes to throw his title in at the end of all of his movies and shit. Yeah. But you know, that's, that's his thing. We don't all have to do that. But um what I mean by this film beginning like a play, though, is not only do we begin the way a play would, um, we begin with exposition that feels like the first actor, like the prologue of a play, where it's like two characters who have almost nothing to do with anything, just like hanging out on the docks, and some guy just dumps exposition for five minutes. Yeah. <laughs> where it's like, hey, what's up with this ship? It's like, well, let me tell you about that ship. <laughs> yeah. Like, and it's just two guys, and it may as well be like waiting for Godot or some shit. <laughs> but um, it's it's really cute. Like it it has a I don't know like a let me tell you a scary story kind of vibe to it, or at least it it had that feeling to me anyway. Where it's like it it has an air of mystery where it's like i don't know exactly what's going on and nor do i know who these people are but there's something going on in that ship and then we get in the ship and things become a lot less mysterious <laughs> yeah yeah there's a director he want there's a director he wants to he wants to take this ship to this island skull island uh, which is really cool sounding uh, i'm trying to think like at the time like yeah you don't know what's gonna happen i don't know what the poster looked like or if people had any idea what was gonna happen when they got into the theater so like this this exposition at the top would be very useful uh, as far as telling the story. But yeah, then we find out from this guy, he's like, yeah, we're going to go to Skull Island, I'm going to make this movie. And they're like, all right, sounds good. Uh, <laughs> probably get a lead actress. And he's like, yeah, I'll, I'll do that. Yeah, uh, so the the fella that was inquiring about the ship uh, is apparently like a casting agent or director of his own right uh, who's going to meet this Carl Denham fella uh, on the ship. Um, so they've chartered the ship to take them to some location. It needs to be said, uh, somehow he did all this. He organized like a few dozen armed sailors and a whole big old ship without actually telling them where they're going. But you know, <laughs> like, he doesn't disclose that until they're at sea. <laughs> you were paying attention to this part? Yes, Kyle, I was paying attention at this part. <laughs> Dude, I was just I was on my phone until we until we got on the ship basically. Like I was just like, "Yep, okay, he's meeting her." Like, "All right. All right. All right, now we're on the ship. Okay. Now we're getting close." So yeah, Jesus, I, Kyle. Well, I mean, come on. Like what what are we here for? Are we here for the story or are we here for the stop motion? We're we here for the big damn gorilla. Yeah. <laughs> like, this is uh, inconsequential. <laughs> I mean, you're not wrong, but I'll, I'll still relay some details to you. So if you if you just want to be silent and yeah, catch I'll, up with me. Like, you, if you wrote, wrote all this down, good for you. <laughs> like, I, I didn't did write not. shit down, Kyle. <laughs> yeah, I, guess I didn't write to. shit down. But um, yeah, we're, we're in the ship and uh, we get introduced to a whole bunch of characters here. So we get introduced to Denim and uh, he's the film director, obviously. And we have this quandary where... Uh, this casting director is here to report that, like, hey, uh, so that gal that you wanted me to recruit for your picture, uh, your moving picture there, uh, didn't get one. And it's a problem because you won't tell anyone where this ship is headed. And, uh, you know, even even in these uh, economically strained times, uh, a lot of gals aren't exactly terribly enthused about the idea of hopping on a mysterious ship full of sailors armed sailors um off to a voyage to nowhere uh so 
basically we have a situation where a director is hoping to go to an exotic location uh, somewhere in around Southeast Asia um, to film some stuff, uh, but he doesn't have a leading lady. Uh, so this is a problem for a filmmaker. Um, we also get introduced to the captain who, um, much like a few other characters, including Denim, who is the main character of it, are uh, featured in the sequel Son of Kong. Um, I like the captain. Uh, he has a nice demeanor to him. He has that like old old man air of respectability. Um, and then we also get introduced Jack. Uh, the he's like the first mate, and uh, his his booming man voice uh, that <laughs> like he is always at this register. He kind of has like a proto Harrison Ford vibe to him, but you know without any charisma. <laughs> um, there's a moment here where like Jack attempts to like get in on a joke or something. He's like, <laughs> he's like, yeah, you told him, and you can tell it's like an actor's moment where it's like that was written verbatim in the script and he's just doing it because he's not putting any of himself into the delivery of the line it's just like well it's in the script it's like you really told him boss <laughs> it's like okay jack fuck off <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah denim takes to the streets and uh he uh comes across like a bread line essentially and it's like not only is it like a bread line it's specifically like for a women's shelter yeah um and uh, Kyle, you would, you were telling me some stuff about like the the era in which this film was released uh, that probably makes some more sense of these visuals we're seeing here. Yeah, the this is filmed right at the end of the Great Depression. Like it had just kind of finished. I'm sure tons of people were still feeling the effects of it. Um, but yeah, this was probably filmed during that. I mean, right then, like when it was still happening. Uh, so that it's relevant. Uh, so yeah, he he's at like a little just little kiosk, little stand where you can get apples. I guess you could do that, but I I we have like gum and like candy bars now at these little things uh, where you get newspapers. But uh, there's a lady who just kind of or there's a, a figure that just kind of like s- like shuffles up to the thing and looks like she's about to steal an apple. And this dude is about to Aladdin chop her hand off for trying to take an apple. It's the same thing in Aladdin, dude. <laughs> Yeah, this is this is almost exactly the the opening of Aladdin yeah. when a uh, Princess Jasmine meets uh, Aladdin. Yeah, um, <laughs> and yeah, he 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 jumps out from behind that counter so fucking fast, dude. It was insane. <laughs> um, as I said before about Chris Farley, nothing that large should move that fast. No. <laughs> um, yeah, it's the kind of thing where I think maybe he's used to this like maybe this has happened frequently or something because what what i think is really funny about it is uh this is ann darrow by the way but we haven't seen her face yet no uh, so it's a it's like a lithe female figure with a with a hat because 1930s um and she's just like putting her fingers on an apple she's like doing what you would do casually at a supermarket like yeah. turning an apple over making sure there's no wormholes in it and stuff and the minute, she, like, the second she touches it, this motherfucker's like, "No, you die!" <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, immediately. Um, you know what's funny? I was thinking about this. Uh, I learned in uh, a nutrition class I took in college that bacon and eggs wasn't a part of the American diet until the until a a guy who made bacon went to an advertising agency and said, "Listen." I'm not selling any bacon, so I need you guys to find a way to sell bacon. So that traditional uh, American breakfast of bacon and eggs was actually from an advertisement. It was never a part of like American diets. Like it was made up. So 
I, and that was probably probably late forties, early fifties when that came around. So I'm like, what did people eat back then? Like, what what was normal? Because the next scene is him taking her to a restaurant, and I'm like, what did people even eat in the thirties? I don't even know. What was it? That- I don't know, but you've uh, you've sparked my interest. I'm gonna have to look that up because I have the same question. Um, and yeah, I, I don't think like it's it's hard for me to imagine like pork bellies being in like ready supply all throughout American history. It'd probably be a little bit of a luxury item uh, yeah. earlier in the country's history. But yeah, I don't know what like a, a typical American breakfast would have been in the 1930s. I, so I'll, well, I think I'll have to look that up. Breakfast, I think, was like bran, like oatmeal. I think that was kind of what it was, like some kind of some kind of grain like that, uh, maybe barley or something. That um, sounds right. Which was very, com- I think that was very common, like in America way before that. But uh, yeah, before the 1950s, like because you'd always see like people in malt shops, you know, getting the cheeseburger or something like that. Like that, that kind of American food was very popular. But I'm like, but before that, like, what the fuck were we even eating? I have no clue. Yeah, no, I have no idea, nor do I uh, have anyone uh, with, uh, nor do I have ready access to anyone who would have an answer to that. So I'll have to do some independent research on that. Uh, I am, I'll, I'll admit, uh, just because I'm super busy, I am kind of going back through Mad Men again, and I there's something that stuck out to me again was they're they're in this really nice fancy New York restaurant in like the early '60s, and the guys like. Well, I'm only getting one egg, but uh, at least I'm having fried chicken for dinner. I'm like, ooh, like 1960s upscale New York uh, restaurant getting fried chicken. I'm like, that's probably some bomb ass fried chicken. Actually, I think I'm gonna get fried chicken tonight. <laughs> that sounds really good. <laughs> Sold. Sold. <laughs> Stop selling what you've made the sale. <laughs> okay, so uh, yeah, our <laughs> really got off there. <laughs> it's fine i'm sorry i thought like i've thought about the ways that our podcast kind of just we we kind of te- like teeter off i realized that you you take us kind of into a rabbit hole sometimes where you, you'll kind of keep diving deeper and diving deeper which is fine i will take us like completely off like onto a different train <laughs> like we're we're jumping this train to get onto another one so i apologize if that's exactly what i just did <laughs> It's fine, Kyle. Actually, um, funny you should mention it. As I've been getting back to posting the show on YouTube, um, I a long time ago I used to take excerpts from the show, like a couple minute chunks, and I'd throw those up in the form of YouTube clips. Um, all of the all of those were random fucking tangents gotcha. brought on by you. Yes. <laughs> like every single one of them, and I I re-listened to a lot of them the other night. And they're fucking hilarious. <laughs> Sorry. Um, you should you should look up the show on YouTube. Um, at the very least, maybe look up the Tom Sizemore one. Uh, it's, it's oh my god! What did I say about Tom Sizemore? <laughs> I don't even remember now. Well, now uh, you have to look it up. So. <laughs> <laughs> you have homework to do. But um, anyway, back to Kong. So uh, we have the situation where this lady, who again has not shown her face to the camera yet, where this is a big reveal. Um, is being accosted by this uh, like fruit stand owner. And uh, Carl Denham, our uh, filmmaker on the hunt for a leading lady, uh, just happens to be there, and he pays the guy off. He's like, back off, son. <laughs> and uh, he, he like grabs this woman, and he turns her around, and she gets her own soft focus. Uh, she, gets the, she gets the good eye light. She gets the soft focus filter because 1930s. Yes. And uh, she gets her own face reveal camera angle, and it's Faye Ray. And her, 
really good bone structure. She has a she has a really nice nose. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I, noses are apparently important to me. <laughs> I've noticed this, <laughs> but. Uh, this is such a bizarre meeting of these two characters because he turns her around and she looks like she's about to pass out from like hunger or exhaustion. Yeah, she's pretty um, hot. Like, how is she going hungry at this point? She's pretty hot, but she looks like she's dry heaving and she's about to die. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they, they yeah. still put like the sexy light on her though. Yeah, but her body language suggests <laughs> like her eyes are about to roll back into her head and she's gonna collapse on the sidewalk let's um, say you're he, kind of a looker let's go get you some food <laughs> it's even fucking weirder than that kyle because he's he's got her by like both the arms and he's like holding her up she's about to collapse and he just like looks out into the street and he's like taxi <laughs> <laughs> and then we like crossfade to a diner <laughs> yeah i guess i mean men have always been rapscallions and scoundrels but it was nice to see you know he's actually just gonna take care of her like i'm just gonna get you some food and also i'm gonna I mean, exploit you <laughs> if that fade to black lasted a little bit longer we would have a different movie <laughs> it's like yeah. it's one of those situations it's like wow i didn't even need the roof and all for that one <laughs> it's like, like mystic Jesus river <laughs> it has a mystic oh. river. yeah <laughs> um but yeah no he he doesn't run off into the night with andero he takes her to a diner and gets her a good meal and uh, they just get to talking, and he's like, "Hey, lady, uh, you're kind of you're kind of fine. Yeah. Um, have you ever done some acting?" And apparently, she has. Uh, this is expanded in the Peter Jackson version, where uh, Naomi Watts is like shown to be like a vaudeville performer, so she is a member of the theater. Like she's she is an actress by trade. Um, in this movie, it's just like she she's fallen on hard times, just like everyone else. Uh, she's done some like extra work in films so think like jennifer connelly in the rocketeer or something she's been a a lady in waiting on the set of a film or two or something um and he proposes to her like hey uh i have the chance of a lifetime for you Uh, in fact he uses the words like adventure uh, for her he's like it's a boat ride away to adventure and being as she doesn't have shit going on in her life and yeah. she's starving, she's like, fuck, yeah, I'll, I'll hop on that boat with you. Like, yeah, dude, and, uh, I was for- stealing apples a minute ago. Yeah, but whatever you want. <laughs> yeah, whatever you want. Whatever and, you uh, want. Sure enough, she says yes, and uh, we cut to the boat, and uh, we get an introduction uh, between her and uh, Jack Driscoll, yeah. uh, where we, we see that he is a man's man, and he ain't got time for no gals, which... Doesn't necessarily make him that much of a man's man, now does it? (laughs) There's a a very confused message we're projecting here. (laughs) Yeah, we were talking about this in War of the Worlds, where it's like you have your your couple, like your your two people, but like your breeding pair. Yeah, your breeding pair. He doesn't give a shit about her in that movie until like until the (laughs) end. But like he's not interested in her at all romantically. Like it doesn't even come up. Like we got other things to worry about. Same here. It's just like the way they build a relationship is very strange. Yeah, I think it's a, uh, I think it's like a contrivance where there's an expectation from the studio that such and such elements will be added to the film at some point. So in this one, it gets double fucking dumb. Where yeah. It's just like, okay, we just had our lives threatened by a bunch of natives. Uh, it's the night after, and Jack just says, "I think I love you, yeah. woman." <laughs> I mean, it would be great if he was like, hey, Amy, I think I love you. And she's like, my name's Anne. Whatever. Whatever. <laughs> There's a moment like that in Spartacus, the Kirk Douglas film. He saves one of the hotties for, uh, during the slave revolt. And then they're just like talking by a brook. And she's like, oh, Spartacus, I love you. 
And even as a kid, I'm like, huh? Like, you just met him. Yeah. It was a different era of film, and like you, like you've always told me, that was like Kubrick's uh, studio film. Yeah. Um, so more than likely, he had to take his licks and whatnot. My, I don't know how I don't know how true I don't know how true this is, but my dad always had a funny story about Spartacus. Like I, I saw parts of that movie. I never finished it. But it's like, fine. He he always told me that um, during the I am Spartacus scene, like he he the way he would tell me the way the movie worked was like there's one guy that stands up and has like a Brooklyn accent. He's like, "Hey, I'm Spartacus." <laughs> it's like, where the fuck did that guy come from? Dude. Like, what's what set did he walk in from? <laughs> Do you know where you're at? Honestly, it's a it's a top heavy movie. Like, it's kind of like Full Metal Jacket, where it's like the first part is a lot of fun. Like, you're really enjoying it. And then the second half, you're just like, eh, I kind of just don't give a shit now. Yeah, I only saw the, the opening portions of it, and thankfully that some of that involved Kirk Douglas doing some Gladiator stuff. And, I was and like, some... No, as, a, as, as a young person, I was like, that's that's not bad. I don't mind that. And some Olivier. Uh-huh. Yeah, see, I, I don't even think I got there, to be honest. He was... Uh, it doesn't matter. Um, <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> so what what happens before we meet the locals? Which did you say Southeast Asia? Um, they say it's somewhere near Sumatra, which would be Indonesia, uh, which would be like Southeast Asia. <laughs> they might be a little bit uh, off with their geography, but that's fine. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're they're not entirely sure what they're doing. Uh, I don't think anyone really cared uh, when it came to representation in 1933 King Kong. Uh, <laughs> I mean, is it is it is it bad? Like, I I feel like this didn't age as poorly as I thought it could. If you know what I mean. I. Uh, I think you're kind of right. I have seen more egregious examples of the kind of stuff you're talking about there, but um, as far as I understand, most of like the alleg- allegations in regards to like racism and stuff are mostly just like you know dealing with the the times. Where it's like it was a different time. Yeah. Like I don't think I don't think the film was presented or, or cobbled together in a malicious fashion or anything, but it was a different time. It was a different world. Um, but yeah, I, I will say that parts of this are a lot more digestible than some other stuff I've seen. Honestly, like you yeah. could argue that Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea uh, is just as bad, and that's a fucking Disney movie from the fifties. Yeah. Um, I, I don't think it's any better or worse than that. Is what I'll say. Well, I just I my butthole puckered up because I'd forgotten about this this sequence. I'm like, oh no! But then I was watching. I'm like, you know what? That didn't seem like it was too bad. Um, but yeah, we, we meet the locals. I do like how this, uh, how this happens. But by the way, I wish that this movie just stayed on this island. I don't know how you feel about that. Like, I feel like once we're on the island and going through and trying to find her, I'm like, it's so much fun. And I wish we could have just kind of spaced this out a little bit more and stayed on the island. Well, it needs to be said, folks at home, uh, we never did a review for it, but, uh, both Kyle and I happen to like Kong Skull Island, Mm -hmm. um, the, the 2017 uh, King Kong film and what do you know uh, the structure of that film is pretty much exactly what you're talking about yeah. <laughs> um, there's a reason Skull Island's in the title uh, because that's Stay mostly there. what that film is um, 
but also it needs to be said folks at home uh you can you can tell kyle did not give a shit about the first half hour of this film because no. he, he skipped about 20 minutes of dude there's just <laughs> i don't give a shit i don't give a shit what you're talking about are you gonna i'm not a- i'm not about to roll not it back you. i'm just i'm not. just telling it like it is you, like you literally jumped like 20 minutes i the- i literally have in my notes it says back end of the great depression 26 minutes of chit chat meet the locals those are my first three notes Okay, well, that's where we're going from. I'm just so saying- they 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 do find Skull Island. So it needs to be said we 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 aren't actually told where we're headed. We just we just go out to sea with a whole bunch of rifles and explosives, yeah. uh, loaded for bear, um, with a film director who is planning to make a film with exactly one actor. By the way, <laughs> what? <laughs> like, what oh, the fuck? <laughs> I'm sorry. I did. There uh, there were a couple of things on the boat I did want to mention. One. Her acting reel of her like practicing like oh no see the <laughs> it just reminds me of Kristen Wiig doing <laughs> doing uh, uh, old starlets on uh, Saturday Night Live like she's really funny uh, doing like Judy Garland and uh, whoever did Sun uh, Sunset Boulevard whoever that lady was uh, but the Chinese man did you catch him yeah uh, he has a few choice lines uh that are, <laughs> that are maybe the most inflammatory in the entire film to be honest he doesn't look chinese trevor am i wrong uh the actor's name is victor wong so okay I, I, he may not look it but i'm pretty sure he is because I, I thought they were trying to trying to sneak something bias here i'm like wait a minute i don't know if that man's chinese well, he, he gets the short end of the stick uh, next time out because he is one of the cast members who returns for Son, Son of Kong. And in this film, King Kong, uh, his he actually gets a name. It's Charlie, the cook. Um, but in the in Son of Kong, in the sequel, as far as I remember, his on-screen title is Chinese Cook. Jesus. <laughs> yeah, Jesus is right. <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> um, but yeah, he has, he has some choice lines uh, in this film that are like oh fuck <laughs> like that like different time just keep that in your mind as you're watching this different fucking time um i won't repeat them here but uh check them out if you if you so desire but yeah. um basically uh, the way we get to skull island is uh denim has a map to this skull island place which is an uncharted location and he i'm not going to go through the specific details as to how he acquired this map but basically someone gave him this map and said hey uh, if you want to film some cool shit uh, go to skull island Uh, there's totally not a giant ape there that's going to tear your guts out um and this comes up in the sequel as far as i remember in son of kong where um, i think we actually meet the fella and he becomes the antagonist uh, the guy who gave him the map but that's neither here nor there so we we finally arrive at skull island and we have to penetrate this fog wall which in other kong films becomes like a a threat unto itself like in skull island it, it's like it's like a, a really big problem like we can only get there we can actually only penetrate the storm under very specific conditions but in this film it's just it's just fog <laughs> it's not a big deal yeah um, although there is like a reef that that they exposit about but it never becomes a part of it and i think the the first stop motion effects we get in this entire film are birds yes um yes and it's kind of neat because it's like it it's a what you would call like a, a whimsical effect where it's like it's one of those things that they didn't need to put it there just somebody thought it would be neat to have some stop motion birds flying around and to make poor willis o'brien like work three months or something <laughs> like animating these tiny birds that are 
basically not detailed at all. They're just shadows that are fluttering around. Uh, but there's a lot of them. And they don't add anything to the movie other than a little bit of life. Um, so it's like they're kind of easing you into the waters of the visual effects and whatnot. I can't wait for you to watch some of these Carol Zeman movies because I think you're really going to enjoy them. I might even just get it for you. I might even just get your own little <laughs> your, your Criterion box set. Uh, I'd be down. Uh, they're they're really cool. Uh, but yeah, I I like the I like the the, the birds. I like my ooh. I like I got excited. I'm like oh, it's about to start. We're about to get into it. Well, the other thing that uh, I I was actually very curious to hear what you had to say about it. Um, the other star of the show, aside from Kong and all the stop motion effects in this film, of which of which there are countless shots, um, is the matte paintings. Um, this film has some glorious matte paintings, and uh, in fact. There's a stop-motion technique um, wherein the background is actually painted onto the film. So you'll you'll have like a stop-motion figure that's a 3D a 3D model, like a 3D maquette. So like a, a it has an armature and it has a like a steel skeleton, the Kong figure basically. So something that's physically manipulated in front of the camera. But in addition to that, there's a glass plate, like a mat placed in front of the camera that has a map painted on top of it so um you have all you have these crossover of effects work and it, it's just like really astounding eye-popping stuff but um in addition to the birds we also get the reveal of the skull island shoreline and the the big wall in the distance and we mm-hmm. get to see just the sheer detail and and attention to detail put into these matte paintings which completely dominate most of the skull island um sequences um and uh, what what did you think of them, Kyle? Because there's some spectacular ones in this movie. Honestly, I'm gonna end up watching this movie again soon. I might just go ahead and get this on Blu-ray if it's available. Uh, just because I I didn't have time to really appreciate the map paintings. Because like you said, once we're on Skull Island and we're with King Kong, it's all happening. Like we have all kinds of different things. Uh, my personal favorite is the uh, I don't know how to describe it other than. Like, after they kill the first dinosaur, and they're, like, walking by it, but they're, like, walking by the screen. It's just it's just funny. But I, I think I'm going to go back, because I didn't get to see... There was two map paintings that I really appreciated. That's when Kong is taking uh, Anne up. I think he's got her up in this little area, or he's taking her up there, and there's, like, a really, really big one. Uh, and then the city one at the end of the movie, when the train is coming. Uh, it's like yeah. A, like, a, like the Dick Tracy... Uh, skyline matte painting was really good yeah it's it's like metropolis meets dick tracy um really really astounding stuff the 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 cave uh kong's cave before he ascends yeah um with the the bubbling water at the bottom uh, that one's spectacular yeah um but all of the jungle scenes are so lush and Mm. dense um it's kind of amazing to think that like how much artifice is on the screen and yet it feels like a set or something like it feels like you're looking at a real space it's like no actually most of that's just a fucking painting and that's a fucking puppet (laughs) it's it's a whole like the whole movie like when we're on skull island for the most part is just a special effects bonanza and it's really fucking convincing stuff aside from you know the herky-jerky stop-motion stuff but even that has a charm to it so it doesn't detract from the film or anything um but like kyle had said uh we do enter the island interior um, and we come to this wall that uh, it, it's presented to us in a foreboding fashion where Denim exposits to us earlier in the film about the nature of this wall and how it's, it's meant to keep something out. <laughs> it's meant to keep them alive. Um, 
and we get to see this tribe of fellas and ladies that are doing some sort of ritual and uh, they're parading around in gorilla costumes of some sort and it's pretty obvious to tell like yeah that's a gorilla suit <laughs> um, yeah. it's, it's um, equivalent to the Rick Breaker suit from the 70s <laughs> but um, we we approach them so Denim brings his camera and everything and it needs to be said that he does a screen test on the ship before we uh, make landfall at Skull Island and that's what Kyle was talking about earlier about Kristen Wiig and uh, how Fay Ray's acting looks kind of like her um, I really like that scene because, yeah, her her acting's kind of hokey, but Jack Driscoll does actually get a decent moment in there when he grabs the captain's arm. He's like, what the fuck is he training her to react to? Because um, it's like training us, the viewer, like, get ready, like, something big coming. So it's like, I don't know, like a rehearsal for what's to come. And it does have, like, a legitimate sense of foreboding to it because... Um, this movie, like the soundtrack, is really oppressive at times. Like this, the orchestra is working overtime in this movie at times. Um, but for that scene, like as far as I remember, there's no music playing really. Uh, it's just her giving, it's him giving her direction and telling her to intensify her reactions, and it culminates with her letting out her trademark Fay Ray scream. And uh, yeah, it does like a fade to black, and Jack's like kind of shook up by he's like oh that's fucking intense like, <laughs> but <laughs> i was like i don't know about this gal she's weird um, but um we actually have an interaction with the natives um because denim tries to film them doing the ritual and they they almost immediately spot him yeah i like how he's trying to hide it <laughs> yeah behind like two leaves yeah. <laughs> like, oh shit they see us like, yeah there's fucking 20 people behind you man you've got you've got a camera like obviously they're gonna see you yeah no they they really suck at playing hide and seek but um this this sequence is interesting because this is what kyle and i were talking about where it's like we've seen worse examples of this kind of thing from this era of film uh where these natives approach them and they the captain can fortunately speak a tongue that's close to theirs, so they can kind of understand each other and they actually have a civil like verbal exchange yeah that results in hostility but our heroes are allowed to just leave like they just yeah. leave the island no no violence nothing they just like a couple of nasty expressions are thrown around some nasty words are spoken and then they just leave whereas as far as i remember the uh the um Dino De Laurentiis uh, version of King Kong from the 70s. Uh, this culminates in violence. And then even worse, the Peter Jackson one turns into the... Uh, these natives are are represented as the Urukai um, oh. <laughs> in the Peter Jackson version. They are, they are fucking goblin people um, that are also cannibalistic and almost immediately try to tear people's heads off and, in fact, do decapitate several sailors and try to eat them. Jesus. Um, yeah, whereas in this one, nothing. They just, yeah. like who the fuck are you get out get off my lawn and then they leave <laughs> and there's no like uh no like uh intelligence kind of barrier it's not like we're smarter than these these people like it i'm like yeah this could have been so much worse it uh, could have been so much worse but no it's like no we actually have diplomacy between yeah. our our heroes and the natives for a while but we do we do kind of they do some sneaky shit later though well, yeah, no, I mean, they, they shoot first. And, yeah. and actually, that's another thing. Um, there's no retaliation on the part of the heroes. Like, they don't yeah. actually go there and start blasting people. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm thinking Tommy Lee Jones and uh, Batman. Blast him! 
I mean, yeah, it, it like you would half expect that. And in fact, what I'm trying to say is you would not be surprised at all. Yeah. If if after what the natives do, like actually, um, Kyle was talking about this to me um, before we started recording about influences. Um, one that I'll Oof. bring up that you can share with me here is a. Uh, so we we head back to the big old boat, and it's the middle of the night, and uh, Jack sidles up to Anne, and he's like, "Hey, I think I love you," and she's like, "But you hate yeah, women, you're okay?" <laughs> she's like, "But you hate women." He's like, "Yeah, but you're all right." <laughs> <laughs> like fair legit. point <laughs> that's legit what happens <laughs> yeah she she tells him but you hate women he's like shut up and kiss me and they kiss <laughs> and uh she you know she's okay with it and uh if he gets called into like a meeting with the captain and denim because they're trying to figure out like huh how can we continue shooting this film and like get back to skull island without risk of violence and stuff and while she's hanging out on the deck um we see a couple of outrigger canoes uh paddle up to the side of the boat and uh they kidnap her yeah uh, very sneakily and fortunately though uh, one of the natives drops like a necklace of some sort on the deck um, which is discovered by uh, Charlie the cook, who does an all hands on deck over a fucking necklace. Jesus, Ooh. Charlie. <laughs> Dude, <laughs> uh, I was thinking at the time, like, I know how much sailors drink, and I know how much sailors drink at the time, like, like contemporary. But I'm like, we're in the 30s. The fucking ha- like the amount of hangover that these guys have <laughs> when they actually first set sail, like they were like getting stuff ready to go, and I'm just like, oh. I could I could feel the headache watching this. Uh, sorry, I just had to I had to note that. Like, <laughs> I could just like. Uh, uh. <laughs> well, dude. I mean, you you in in a contemporary setting, you would expect one of these guys to come up to the deck, just like holding his palms to his temple, and just be like, Charlie, fuck you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's just like keep it down charlie for fuck's sake yeah. <laughs> could you just not fucking yell please <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah charlie gives a, a holler and gets everybody up on the deck but uh the reference uh that i alluded to earlier uh the mummy uh the brendan fraser mummy um I seem to recall this being kind of similar to a sequence of that. Film. Oh, we're yes, the, the boat. Other, looks like yeah. we're on the right side of the river. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Look who's on the wrong side. Well, of yeah, because the river. The, uh, the magi uh, they storm the boat. Yeah, the key. Yeah, yeah. It's very similar setup. Interesting. Um, yeah, yeah. And you know, this is this is like the prototypical big jungle adventure movie, and and you know those movies, those mummy movies, certainly have a similar bloodline to that um so i wouldn't be surprised if it was directly lifted from this film but long story short uh everybody gets wise to the fact that Anne has been swiped from the deck of of the ship uh so we make preparations to head to skull island and then we get this like really uh intense sequence that made me think of metropolis um wherein there's no dialogue uh it's just all like orchestra music and tribal drums and again the natives are carrying out some form of ritual and Air- Anne is like on the ground being restrained by some people and we just have all these cuts and shots of people like doing dances and like waving torches and the, the soundtrack is going fucking ballistic and like i said there's no dialogue for mm-hmm. several minutes here 
and we just keep cutting to Anne, and she looks fucking delirious. I love like, her. She I looks like she acting. got the good drugs or something. Yeah, her acting is ridiculous. But it's like, how do you give someone a direction in this kind of movie? This has never been done. Like, how are you supposed to anticipate? I think she would probably fight a bit more and be a bit more frustrated. But I wish there was theremin. I don't know why I thought theremin would be more fun over this sequence. Because you're about to, <laughs> you're about to throw in a science fiction element into the film. I don't know. I feel like theremin would have been a lot of fun. Well, I don't know how easy a theremin is to get a hold of. That's the thing. <laughs> it's kind of an exotic instrument, but it uh, needs to be said. The score was done by one Max Steiner, who is not a household name, at least for me. But um, I've read, I, I can't say from experience, but I've read that uh, the, his score for this film is also, also kind of trend-setting. And it's very... Uh, it's composed in such a way where it it matches this on-screen action very precisely where like there's an ebb and flow to it that is it's very coordinated it's kind of like john williams in the sense where it's like it it matches beat for beat what you're seeing on the screen in fact there's some there's some really really fun moments where the the music really punctuates a moment where like a character will die or like a a dinosaur will get its neck broke or something and the the music will actually go don't don't <laughs> it's like in time with the with the action it's really cool uh something interesting about this uh i checked to see when how long Faye ray because these old like old actors and actresses usually the men die at like age 60 and the women live to be like 100 uh she lived to be 96 uh, and surprisingly uh, a lot of the men a lot of the male uh, actors ended up into their 60s or 70s even uh some of them in their 80s in their 80s trevor like can you believe that <laughs> yeah without the benefits of modern medicine it's just like hardy folks man <laughs> uh but yeah kyle has this uh, running theory that uh, these uh old-time hollywood starlets are just have the gift of longevity yeah. and seems to be seems to be dead on man <laughs> like either, i don't think you've gotten it wrong once either they have longevity or they died five minutes after the movie we watched like that that's basically the two yeah no middle ground no um but anyway, we get the iconic ritual wherein uh, they open the giant gate, which in 1933, they built a giant fucking gate. It's huge. It's, it's pretty fucking impressive. It's real fucking tall. Yeah. Um, and we get this really cool shot that's unfortunately, I don't know if it's marred. Like, I'm, I'm curious what your opinion is. So when they open the gate, we get this really cool push in shot. So it's not a zoom. We're actually putting the camera on a dolly and like pushing it towards the action. But they cart and off towards the like the gate that they string her up to and the camera's on a dolly like i said but it's all jittery and shit <laughs> like, like the camera's like jostling around and it gives it kind of like a a frenzied feel i guess and it matches the energy of the crowd but at the same time it's like one of those things where it's like couldn't you just like grease up the fucking track and like make it smooth <laughs> what was your question like do you think it would be better if it was smooth or is it fine as it is? Oh, I didn't, I didn't really notice that. I didn't, I didn't notice the shaking part. Okay. Well, it's neither here nor there. So, um, anyway, this, this sequence is very iconic. This is one of those things that finds its way into just pop culture media, um, where it's been referenced countless times where we have a young lady strung up between two pillars and, uh, they, bang a giant symbol like a giant gong which <laughs> the, the positioning of the chief 
He's standing directly in front of the gong. Yeah. <laughs> like, dude, you are deaf. <laughs> like, your ears are blasted. Um, and by the way, I noticed that this uh, chief figure, um, he has some sort of prostheses or some form of makeup effects on his face. So mm-hmm. re- uh, I can see why guys like Peter Jackson adore this film. It really does have like, every trick in the book. And mind you, this is 1930s. This is like, was it Lon Chaney's senior kind of territory? This yeah. is This is pre pre um what's his face jack um the guy that worked on like boris karloff frankenstein and stuff so um early early makeup effects and stuff but anyway we bang the gong and uh Anne's freaking the fuck out and uh i think it's like 46 minutes into the film we finally get gong it takes a while yeah it takes a minute <laughs> but the rest of the movie is mostly calm yeah, and I'm curious, Kyle, what did you think of uh, Kong's his like grand entrance into cinema? Because it's the first time anyone's ever seen the fucking thing. Well, I think it would have a little bit a little bit more fun if we got like uh, our Jurassic Park like ground shaking kind of thing. Because he just kind of just kind of appears. Uh, yeah. it's, it's not bad. Uh, I, I didn't really have a problem with it. Like, like I said, like it's 1933. Like you can only be so critical. Yeah, no, I I agree with you. It would be nice to have like a little bit more build up, uh, because you're right. He he just kind of fucking appears. Yeah. <laughs> like the first shot we have of him isn't like him coming in through the tree line. I mean, technically he does, but because of this, the visual effects techniques that we're using here, uh, we don't really have the means to show him like come through the trees and stuff uh, the way you would in like a Jurassic Park or something, but. He's very clearly visible behind like a mat of trees, and then he, he just is there. And then we get this big animatronic uh, head where I love the facial expression on this yeah. thing. It just he's just going, "Hey!" Those are some of my favorite. Those are some of my favorites. It's just the we get a few things. So we have like an actual. I think it was like eighteen inches. Uh, like the actual stop. Like the 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 King Kong. But then we have like these close-up shots of a face, and then we have uh, giant hands. Like at one point, you see Fay Ray being held in hands. I like those. I like the the the, the going back between those different shots. Yeah, it, it's kind of curious because they don't match up very well. But again, because 1933, it doesn't detract from the film at all. Actually, um, it's it's less defensible in like the <clears throat> 1976 version where they they do a similar thing where they jump back and forth between giant animatronic hand and rick baker rick baker in a gorilla costume um it's less defensible there where it's just something about the technology used in the era in which it was shot it's like eh, it doesn't look great but in this it's like oh it's all good it's yeah. all goofy so it doesn't matter it's all fun um but yeah we we get a couple of different examples of kong here we get initially the stop motion kong um and he's like burying his teeth and stuff and uh, then we get the animatronic Kong with his derpy facial expression. And I really love the combination of special effects here because the way they, they part the tree line. So we have like a plate shot of of Andero struggling. And then there's a couple of physical trees that were probably on the set with her that are probably set up like rigged in such a way where they can like split them and like drop them out of the frame. So those are actually physically in the room with her. And Kong is like superimposed behind those trees and so the tree line parting is actually like a physical prop that mm-hmm. the the, the stagehands had to move um in order to reveal like the rear projection shot of the gorilla um 
But any, anyway, he, he grabs her and he uh, absconds with her into the jungle. Um, and uh, around that time, uh, Jack and all the other sailors uh, arrive in the village and they, uh, they just very quickly open that gate and decide to head off into the jungle. Um, these guys must be really fucking bored or something because, because they just like, no, they don't think about it at all. They're just like, nope, we're opening that gate. We're going out in that jungle. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> whoa. I mean, well, they, they look, they see what's, one of them sees what, ha- sees what's happening. I'm like, honestly, if I'm one of those guys, I'm like, dude, I think she's, I think she's done. Like, I don't think we're going to get her back. Like, I think that's it. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I, I, I don't think I would be one of those guys to volunteer to run into that jungle. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm good, thanks, though. So, our, our sailors head off into the jungle, and uh, thus begins the Skull Island portion of the film, which is inarguably, you know, the most entertaining portion of the film. Yeah. And uh, I love how we get introduced to, like, all the dangers of Skull Island in, in stages. It's it's almost like a video game. Like, I, I, I can see why this film inspired so many like ambitious filmmakers and stuff because as we said this this movie is just packed to the gills with every special effect trick you can imagine but just just like walking through the jungle we get to see some gorgeous mats of just like the background like filling in the rest of the jungle because we obviously have a set that we're using and probably like shuffling plants around to like make it look more spacious (laughs) than it actually is from shot to shot but like some of the backgrounds like we really do a lot to like blow open the scale of the jungle and actually these are some of my favorite mats in the whole movie or just like the uh, there's like a fog that is cast over the entirety of like a lot of the backgrounds and it really looks it looks like a legit jungle like a, a fantastical jungle not one you could actually visit but like imagine like the the jungle from the robin williams jumanji uh, mm-hmm. The one we never actually see, but the one he talks about. Yeah. Um, the one he describes to us and scares the kids with. It. It. This is it. Like it's. It's represented in King Kong from 1933. But, um, we start finding tracks of Kong, so we get to uh, see all of our characters discover just how big this fucking giant gorilla is. Um, but then the the first creature that we run across is a Stegosaurus or or a an attempt to represent a stegosaurus anyway yeah something from the dinosaur family uh <laughs> one, of, one of the best lines yeah i like how quickly this escalates are like all right don't move we don't want to see it he's just like ah like it just kind of turns his head a little bit and he is on them and it's kind of funny because they're just like shooting at it. it's like ah, ah, ah. like it almost looks like it's glitching it's like because just the way it's moving it's it's really funny but and they shoot it in the head a few times, and he's like, uh, I think it's still still alive. And of course, Americans just like, just keep shooting it in the head. <laughs> uh, this is what I was talking about. It, it's, uh, I kind of think it's funny. It's just like, we have, it's almost like somebody walking past a big movie screen. Like, you're standing in the front row, walking past the, the screen, and it's like, yeah, that's a dinosaur right there. Or that's a, I think it's a dinosaur, something from the dinosaur family. Yeah, uh, I'm in Delaware. Yeah. <laughs> Come on, you want to lay me? Yeah. 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 Um, I mean, that's exactly what you're looking at is a couple of actors, um, more than likely improvising dialogue, uh, walking in place as a uh, as a miniature uh, film reel 
just plays out and they have to match the movements of the of the they're literally watching a movie and reacting to it yeah. um, but I, I i love the sequence for all the reasons that you described it it's it, it's incredibly goofy yeah because the stegosaurus just like casually walks out and then it's just like <laughs> and like huh? who's that i better Dude, fucking kill him <laughs> it's like metal gear like what i've played of metal gear solid it feels like that what? yeah it's just it's just out of fucking nowhere <laughs> yeah i mean you could put an exclamation point over the stegosaurus's head and it would be it would be exactly yeah. that because yeah. this thing just blitzes them the second it sees them mind yeah. you stegosaurus herbivore and these guys are Dude, very far away too <laughs> that's not the only herbivore that fucks people up in this movie <laughs> Yeah, I I don't know. Like maybe, okay. This isn't this isn't a good defense because this is not true. But you know, like, maybe the mainstream understanding of dinosaurs wasn't what it was. But no, I think everybody generally knew the difference between you know a long neck with with flat teeth and you know a stubby arm one with sharp teeth. Um, let's think about let's think about when this was made. How old the person is that's creating these things? Oh yeah, he he wasn't a young man as far as I know. I mean, <laughs> I'm thinking he was born, if not right before, but directly after the Civil War. Like <laughs> we're talking mid 19th century is when this guy was was born. Yeah, that's a good point. And funny enough, uh, this is I don't know. Maybe this is a, a uh, animator trademark because Willis O'Brien, um, The Lost World from 1925, uh, a silent film, um, which was I think his only other like feature uh, stop motion animation before this uh, King Kong, um, also features a rampaging brontosaurus chewing motherfuckers up. So, and uh, not only that, I think the beast from Twenty Thousand Fathoms. Um, no, wait, that was Ray Harryhausen. Um, the one I'm thinking of is the giant behemoth. I think that was him as well, and the the sculpt for that thing bears a strong resemblance to again like a bront or a, a potosaurus or a brontosaurus. Um, so maybe he just had a thing for long necks with a grudge. Um, I think maybe just maybe because they're like the most visually recognizable as dinosaurs. I think it was just easier, and I I think it's it it makes it funnier to me. Like it's just kind of silly. It's a lot more fun because my favorite sequence is the uh, water dinosaur. Which is, I think that's the next one, is it not? Yeah, it, it immediately follows this up. This It needs to be said, this whole sequence, once they encounter the Stegosaurus, it's just it's like a video game. It's just like, boss fight, boss it fight, goes, boss fight. It goes, dude. It <laughs> fucking moves. This, yeah. is, this is the best one, because it's actually creepy. It's actually really creepy how it comes in. And this is where, like, you didn't... the This movie is fucking brutal. Like, violent. And... I, I can't imagine what it would have been like as a kid in the theater seeing this and be like, holy shit, dinosaurs eating people. (laughs) Yeah, that's something that uh, I I mentioned to Kyle um, while he was watching the film via text was that uh, this movie was heavily censored at one point, Um, not upon its original release, funny enough, um, in 1933, but I think it was 1938, the Hays Code uh, came into effect. And there's a, a long history of censorship in American media. Um, vir- virtually every form of art has encountered uh, some form of pushback at some point. Like comic books had the Comics Code Authority, where a lot of material, like su- suggestive themes and stuff like that, couldn't be in comics, and uh, comic authors were required to abide by it for quite a while. Um, we had the the video game uh, censorship scandals, where 
Uh, to this day, there's still legislatures trying to be pushed through um, to, to halt, um, like, explicit video games and stuff being produced. Yeah, good fucking luck yeah, with that. Yeah, good fucking luck, dude. Yeah. multi-billion dollar industry um a lot of a lot of the products of which originate in the united states no way that's gonna happen do you feel in charge <laughs> i mean that's that's what activision said to congress <laughs> <laughs> we're in charge here do you feel in charge yeah um but the the Hayes code was uh in, instituted in the late 1930s and it basically uh, crippled like the film industry not not it didn't prevent them from making good films but it did restrict them from putting Dude, certain images in their film we've got cleavage in this movie like i don't do. remember seeing cleavage in a movie this old yeah actually that's that's one of those shots um when she's in the water um, yeah like we uh, see nipple it's like, one of those things where it's like how the fuck did that get through <laughs> there's we have one i think you can see her nipples through the dress like at some point like that's yeah, unheard yeah. of at this time. Yeah, when she's on the deck, she she's nipping. Like uh, she definitely is not wearing undergarments, just uh, proper ones anyway. <laughs> old white ladies with their hair done up really high, like waving, just waving a fan. Like, oh my goodness, this is awful. Oh, you mean um, like the old ladies at the end of this movie? <laughs> so I, uh, as you as I'm rewatching Mad Men, you kind of hone in on different characters and how they represent just different moods and different uh, like. Uh, different mindsets at the time and uh may one of the main characters peggy uh her mom is like full-blown hardcore catholic and just very very like proper very much just uppity like just not nothing progressive can go past this woman and i'm like god that's got to be oppressive i mean especially just growing up in that in that kind of uh environment and i was picturing her reacting to this movie and just losing her mind yeah um, and the, the censorship uh, in this film uh, really doesn't start to come into effect until ab- about the scene that Kyle was talking about, where, uh, oddly enough, th- this was there's like two shots I can think of that, as far as I know, were not censored at any point in time in this film uh, that are shocking, where one is, of course, cleavage, uh, nipple. Um, that that that's a big no-no. I mean, for fuck's sake, as far as I understand, uh, toilets weren't shown in cinema, wow. like on screen in a film until the 60s. Um, so, uh, nipple, holy shit! <laughs> <laughs> but uh, the other one is uh, when, when we dispatch this Stegosaurus, and for fuck's sake, this Stegosaurus is, I hate to reference this almost every episode, but this Stegosaurus is Mustafa from Austin Powers. <laughs> this thing will just not fucking die. <laughs> yeah, it's the cow because... from me, myself, and Irene. He's just headshot, 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 headshot. <laughs> it's not no joke. They they shoot the thing at a distance. It 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 eats the bullets, so they gas bomb it. And while it's on its back, they shoot it in the fucking face. It's like bores the blade and snatch. <laughs> just... Yeah, and then they get up close to it, and during that. That the aforementioned walk around shot, they shoot it in the fucking eye hole. Yeah, yeah, and blood oozes out. Blood in, in, oozes <laughs> in in close up, in intimate close up. We see blood. We see it like spine curdle my, and blood my, ooze out its eyeball. <laughs> my monocle almost fell out while I was watching. I'm like, holy shit, was that blood coming out of the eye? <laughs> most unorthodox most unorthodox most yes it, re- it really was uh but the water dinosaur now yeah this is supposed to be a it looks like a like a smaller version of a brontosaurus which were fucking massive um uh, 
but it just it kind of peeps up in the foggy water like uh like lock like the loch ness monster or something it just kind of floats in a frame it's really creepy but something is something is terrifying about it to me because it's a water monster and he's just picking people up and just like chomping on them i'm like dude we're killing people in this this is insane <laughs> this is yeah, a kids he, movie <laughs> he he's well it's not actually. i know that's it's the, it was for everybody thing. yeah yeah but the he's like playing with his food yeah he's like I, I love the reveal of all the monsters in this, and this seems to be maybe a, a animator trademark or something. Because every time we get introduced to a new monster, uh, with oddly enough, with the exception of Kong, uh, you know the title character, the one we're all paid to see, um, every time like a new dinosaur shows up in this movie, we get a glimpse of it in the distance, and then it shows up. It's like it's again like in a video game or something where like you'll see something fly by in the background. And it's like oh, I'm gonna fight that thing in 20 minutes, aren't I? Mm-hmm. It's like oh, yeah, you are. Yeah. <laughs> it's gonna be awesome. And sure enough, with this thing, like you said, um, I really love the fog in the swamp area. This whole swamp scene is beautiful. It's great. It's r- the set, like just the physical set where all the actors are running around and splashing in the pond and stuff. It, it looks it, great. It's kind of funny. The the set actually takes a back seat in this, and I I had to like kind of kind of like remind myself I'm like there's a lot going on here. We've got matte painting, uh, stop motion sets, and I'm like. To the point where the sets are, I'm like, I'm like, is that a set? Or did we do, like, some kind of, uh, like, not necessarily an on-location filming in the jungle, but, like, did was there, did they do a little bit of filming somewhere for these shots? But I think you're right. I think it's mostly, mostly sets. I want to say it's a set with a backdrop, and uh, the reason why I say that is because of the fog. Mm. Um putting fog in in an out like an exterior environment would be very very difficult um to to have it be this dense and and this layered um but the thing that's really neat here is we get another uh special effects trick uh, or visual effect trick rather um because the first uh, time we see this this water dinosaur and i think it is supposed to be a brontosaurus um, no its proportions are all brachiosaurus no, that that's gigantic. Like that's, that's yeah, Dino's, Jurassic Park. Dino's the Brontosaurus, and then yeah. Brachiosaurus <laughs> is the big boys. Yeah. yeah, Brachiosaurus have the nostrils on top of the head. The Brontosaurus is what Clifford had in that Martin Short movie. His little uh, just a little foot. Yeah. from uh, Land Before Time. I never but saw those, but yeah, I'm with you. First one's good. I I cannot speak for the 14 other sequels. Yeah, I was say, there's like a thousand <laughs> of those movies. <laughs> Um, but the the initial reveal of this thing, like Kyle said, it, it kind of like we get this. It gets its own glamour it's angle, ominous. just head on. Yeah. Of, yeah, it's ominous because of the fog settling over the water, and its head just kind of like pops up above the surface mm. and it dips back down. And only a couple seconds later, a couple shots later. Oh, oh, by the way, these guys are really fucking quick with a knife and rope. Yeah. Um, they they build a raft in about ten minutes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like these are these are bored kids without television. <laughs> like th- this is <laughs> this is the kind of stuff you can achieve in an environment without video games or TV. <laughs> Craftsmanship on the quick. Um, but yeah, they they come across a swamp and they're like, okay, boys, let's build a raft. And then quick wipe later, yep. We have a raft for like twelve people, <laughs> but um, it flips the raft. But the the thing about this uh, this particular creature is during all of these water shots, a, a thing that's very difficult to do in stop motion animation is water. Um, it can be done, but good fucking lord, it's a challenge. Uh, so this was done with just puppets, 
and this was all shot at like probably they probably like changed the frame rate um as they do with like godzilla movies to make the movements seem heavier and more labored so slow it down basically um uh but yeah all the action all the interactions between this creature and the sailors on the on the swamp it's, it's done with just puppets so it's just somebody whipping a puppet head around and grabbing little puppet sailors and throwing yeah. them through the air and oh my god all the screams and the how the pounding the hollering the, the screaming <laughs> the guy in the tree is oh my god that's yeah he is screaming for dear life like it's pretty terrifying <laughs> i mean that sequence actually kind of gave me flashbacks or actually um maybe this is a uh, steven spielberg uh, taking inspiration from this film uh not just the scene but this entire film um uh, it brings back our uh, cinematic deaths discussion where i brought up uh, eddie from the lost world mm-hmm. um, i always thought of that as one of the most horrible deaths in cinema be- just because of how hard he tried and how how much effort he expended to do a good thing only to get fucking <laughs> torn in half and killed in the most awesome way possible it's very similar in the case with the sailor because he he gets a glorious death all to himself, and he is just an anonymous sailor. We don't ah! even know his name, <laughs> but ah! we spend we spend like thirty seconds with him climbing a tree and kicking at this oh, thing, dude. and it's just baring its teeth at him. It's like it's like Quint being killed by the shark yeah. in Jaws, where that, it's like those seconds before it bites him are terrifying. Much for like that guy. much like Quint after the uh, the sinking of the USS Indianapolis. You come out of it. You come out of Jaws, grown up a little bit after seeing him die. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I came out of that film a little bit closer to being a man. <laughs> a little bit, a little older. Uh, yeah, yeah. Th- this uh, guy getting eaten out of the tree. I mean, it takes a good two minutes. Where the dinosaurs just like going back and forth trying to get him. Oh, he gets him though. Got him, coach. <laughs> I mean, Kong is kind of a dick, as we'll see later in this film, but I want to say this Brontosaurus gets the ultimate douchebag award as far as the monsters in this film are concerned. Yeah, because, kind of an asshole. Like I said, he's playing with his food. Yeah. Like, he's just flipping he's sailors around. He's not eating anybody. He's just grabbing people and flipping yeah. them in the air. This guy, he could have killed him 10 seconds ago, but he just let him think about it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, this guy's death scream, though. Um, it's folks at home look it up yeah it is truly epic shit and and the composers uh the composer and the filmmaker were kind enough to drop the score out so all you hear is him screaming yeah (laughs) Yeah. it's it's so cruel it's the it's like the cinematic equivalent of the time of like watching adam goldberg die and saving private ryan it's just like oh like Jesus Christ! <laughs> That's fucking it, it's, brutal. It's close. It's it's a pretty brutal fucking death. If you, all you have to do is think about it, because like if if you're just watching it, watching the images and reacting strictly to that, whatever you know, it's it's a it's a clay puppet killing a dude or killing another clay puppet. Yeah, but, yeah. <laughs> but if you actually think about like the psychology, like in a real life scenario of being chased up a tree by a giant monster that just i should have been dead 10 seconds ago and yet i'm not and now i have some hope oh shit that makes it worse and now i'm dead (laughs) but um immediately following this though and like i said this movie fucking bam 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 um we cut to another iconic scene which uh is of course represented in virtually every um instance of the, the kong story except for skull island um that would be the log scene Mm -hmm. Uh, so this is a really cool combination of effects um so we have a giant log prop um that's suspended across like a a gap Uh, so it's like a a chasm 
like a cavernous chasm. And uh, our sailors are trying to run across there. Unfortunately, Kong has Anne in one hand, and he turns around. He's like, hey, who's that? <laughs> so he sets her down real quick, and uh, he runs to the other end of this log um, just as they're like halfway crawling across to the other side to get away from him. Uh, so they turn tail and they try to run. And then he picks up his end of the log and he starts turning it and jostling it. And one by one, <laughs> we get to see these poor guys Bam! fall into this hole. And we Bam! get to see we get to see the impact. Yes. That's what I text you. I'm like, dude, this is way more violent than I remember. And and this is where we get um this is where we get like comparisons to the Peter Jackson film. So one thing that that film was always criticized for, uh, for being three hours long is a uh, it's it's thought of as being indulgent and excessive and i i i you know i look at this film and i'm like did you not see the source material <laughs> like do we really have to have an individual shot for each one of those sailors falling for that matter did we even have to have those shots of those sailors falling the answer is no <laughs> but you know somebody thought yeah was, the audience needs to grow some fucking hair on their chest god yeah. damn it so we're gonna make them watch these people fall to their deaths we've got over an- and over <laughs> and over again. we've got another world war to get into here pretty soon we got to toughen these folks up <laughs> i mean he was a high profile hollywood producer i wouldn't be surprised if he knew some shit <laughs> if you if the film was like produced by roosevelt or something but um this this sequence is like the way the special effect or visual effects are done is really really cool because we have um something that we haven't talked enough about is the rear projection effect um this is something that willis o'brien pioneered as far as i know um and he puts it to great use probably the best example is the stegosaurus honestly where uh we have a situation where the interaction between the actors and the stegosaurus uh, who is in the background while our actors are in the foreground is actors acting on a set while the stegosaurus animation is playing out on a giant screen like superimposed in front of them so the actors are like doing a pantomime in time with the projection and this is a technique that's been employed in countless films like uh, one of the funnier examples i can think of is watching linda hamilton run away from the truck explosion towards the end of terminator Um, because it's it's her reacting to a rear projection of that that explosion but she can't get the timing right. So she has to keep like resetting and like getting her blood up and like getting pumped up and having to do the same like impassioned run. Um, but she just can't get the timing right. So they have to keep resetting. And they had to do the same thing for all the rear projection effects in this. But um, we have this giant log prop being jostled around and then we have the spectacular um, Kong animation. Like some like Willis O'Brien had to time the movements of Kong to the movement of the live prop of the log jostling around and it's really cool stuff but um have you have you heard about the uh the lost scene here uh from this movie uh-uh. uh so i don't know if you remember it from the peter jackson king kong but uh, i don't remember anything from that one <laughs> that's fine <clears throat> um so the peter jackson film includes this scene uh so as excessive as this 1933 kong film is uh, there was plans to have an additional sequence where uh spiders and centipedes and all sorts of creepy crawlies giant ones uh, were supposed to come out and like attack the sailors that fell into the chasm i like that yeah and uh there exist like like pre-production photos of what was planned um i think they didn't have time or money to do it Uh, the peter jackson one um holy shit that is a show-stopping like 
creepy sequence in an otherwise you know big budget you know blockbuster like crowd pleasing film uh some of the images and just the general tone of that sequence in the peter jackson film are chilling Uh, there's something about the tone of that that it feels like you're in hell for like two minutes of an otherwise fun movie (laughs) it's genuinely creepy and andy circus makes his exit in that scene and it's fucking horrific (laughs) i'm not gonna lie like it's really awful stuff i should have mentioned that on the cinematic deaths episode um but funny enough i caught an easter egg here that i never thought of before uh so jack manages to survive the logging um by crawling down a vine into like a little nook um in the side of the cliffside and kong is he's a smart animal so he knows that there's something there so he reaches down there and he's trying to grab it jack and jack like shoes him away with his knife so he like nips him in the finger a little bit and uh we get some fun reactions from kong but uh, the easter egg that i mentioned here is uh jack almost gets attacked by some random creature that honestly is probably the laziest prop in the whole movie <laughs> like it looks terrible it looks like something i built um out of play-doh when i was a kid um, I think the design of this was the inspiration for the skull crawlers in Skull Island. I believe you're right. Yeah, I didn't because, I just piece that together. Yeah, yeah, because it's a reptilian thing that has only two legs, but it has like a long, like like snake-like body, and it has the same silhouette as the skull crawler. So I was like, holy shit, that is a deep cut. Because this, this thing does no- exactly nothing in this movie. Because <laughs> yeah, he's just like climbing up the. He's climbing up the rope like Jason Scott Lee and uh, Soldier just, no, <laughs> just boom, 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 boom. Yeah, and he dispatches this thing without incident. Um, but it would go on to inspire. Um, I, I'm not particularly fond of the Skullcrawler designs, but the the fight at the end of Skull Island is just fine. I don't have any objections to the choreography of that. But um, following this, uh, Kong goes back to carting and through the jungle. Um, and we get probably the most uh, iconic battle sequence in this entire film, uh, aside from maybe um, Kong's last stand with the airplanes. And this would be the Allosaurus uh, and Kong. Uh, what did you think of this one, Kyle? You're making some faces at me. <laughs> it wasn't that great. Um, I mean, it's. I think it's more fun to see him interacting with the people than it is with him with other monsters, because that's a lot of work, is you have to get these two to like fight. Um, I think that the Jurassic Park films have referenced this as referenced this 1933 film, like and they've exhausted the references because we get a T Rex fight in that Jurassic Park three with uh one of the other dinosaurs, um, but that wasn't Steven Spielberg, but it was still a Jurassic Park movie. But yeah, it's all right. I feel like it could have been better. Yeah, and uh, Peter Jackson thought the same thing because uh, in his very Peter Jackson way, uh, he decided to uh, completely overindulge himself. And uh, instead of having one uh, giant reptilian carnivore, he pitted Kong against three. (laughs) And that sequence is probably like 10 minutes long or something. And actually, this sequence in the 33 Kong is pretty fucking long as far as stop motion fights go. This is like a two or three minute long fight. Uh, probably took months to shoot this shit. Um, I, I enjoyed it. It's kind of neat. They actually dropped the score out of it. Um, like I said, the, the score for this film is often very overbearing. It's it's a 1930s movie. They tend to be very loud, and the orchestra tends to be very present, uh, even when it shouldn't be. But uh, they know when to shut the fuck up and just let, let the monsters make all the noises. And uh, 
I like the choreography of it because there's like a there's actually kind of like a a psychology to it oddly enough like it's almost like watching a wrestling match where the 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 core plot of the fight is that the allosaurus um it this was back in the day when dinosaurs dragged their tails by the way um not like we know like a t-rex or an allosaurus to do now where their their spine doesn't work that way because like think about the jurassic park t-rex how it's its spine is straight um, but back in the day when I was a kid, back in my day, dinosaurs dragged their tails. This one certainly does. But uh, the, the core plot of the fight is that the Allosaurus's main weapon, uh, the main source of its menace, is its mouth. Uh, so Kong actually employs some, like, almost like boxing or, like, like dirty boxing <laughs> techniques. On, like, he, he shows him the principles of infighting because <laughs> he's, like, clinching with this Allosaurus and uh, constantly, like, putting his head against its chest and, like, putting his shoulder underneath its jaw so it can't bite at him so he's like rest he's like literally wrestling with the thing and funny enough i did a little bit of research and apparently willis o'brien did some boxing in his day hmm. uh so he probably choreographed the thing with that in mind uh, maybe using some of those techniques but um it's a pretty sustained conflict like i said there's no music they really do just kind of let the animation do all the work i really do like the attention to detail though in uh having some interaction with Anne. Um, this is something that Peter Jackson w would replicate in his version, but it's kind of astounding how they, in the complexity of, of the choreography of the fighting, they also never forget that Anne is there. Like, Kong puts her up in a tree so yeah. she can't get away, and then he goes to work fighting the thing. Um, but we continually cut back to her reactions, and then at some point the tree gets knocked over, and she's, like, pinned to the ground. And we we never forget, like, the film never forgets that, hey, there's there's a lady that's also here and she's in danger and it's kind of neat that they're able to juggle that in the edit um without having like crazy mtv editing like <laughs> like it's just like well like oliver stone shit it's like no it's like it's it's fed to you at a steady clip and uh, the camera's locked down so there's not a whole lot of camera motion because that was the technology of the day um but what did you think of the finishing blow here um uh, because like like you said this movie is pretty fucking violent um this is one of the more violent things in this movie i must have been writing a note i didn't i didn't catch the finishing blow uh so this is something that pops up in pretty much any instance of kong fighting a reptilian creature um so it's kind of something we should both be keeping our eyes out for um when we get to godzilla versus kong because like i said this comes up in almost every kong versus a reptile fight um, Kong, Kong has a thing with mouths, <laughs> specifically I, jaws. <laughs> I noticed that with the pterodactyl, but he never actually rips his jaws. Maybe, maybe that was a censorship thing where it's like, dude, you get one. Yeah. <laughs> uh, because, um, this, this happens in the Peter Jackson version as well. And, I uh, do remember that. That is yeah. the one thing I do remember is the jaw. Yeah. So he does the same move in this where he pries back its jaws like you would do an alligator or something and he gives it a good snap uh but not only that he takes the the top half of the jaw and he like bends it to the side a little bit so he effectively just tears the jaw off the hinge and um again just the sheer brutality of this movie we do see when jack walks by this allosaurus I, I, i'm not dead yet I'm <laughs> yeah. just very badly, badly burned, burned. <laughs> because yeah it's still twitching <laughs> Jesus, yeah. But and then the the real the real kicker, um, and again Peter Jackson lifted this directly from the original, is uh, Kong plays with it. 
<laughs> so the poor thing's incapacitated, and he like flaps its its broken jaw open and closed a few times. He's just fucking with it, and then he you know does the iconic, the utterly iconic chest pound in in celebration of his victory, and uh, he scoops up Anne, and in between that, uh, Jack bumps into Carl Denham in the jungle and uh, lets him know what's what's what. So Carl heads back to the camp while Jack continues to pursue Kong. Um, and then we head to Kong's lair where uh, we get the aforementioned uh, glorious matte paintings of his, uh, his like cave. Like it's his hideout basically. And it's really cool looking. And, and it's very complex as well because there's like a, a live prop or live miniature set of some sort in the foreground with like a bubbling pool of liquid and then again animator trademark um the introduction of the like it's not a snake because it has legs but it's like a long salamander or something um that creature is a hinted at as he's coming in he's like looking the other way but there's a pool of water in the center of the cavern that we just see like its little head poke out of the water for just a second (laughs) but it's it's actually it's at the point where this is starting to get hilarious because it's like it's almost like Kong is trying to like carry a bag of groceries home and just like people keep running up on him and asking for favors or some shit. And he's like, motherfucker, I'm just trying to go home. Yeah. Like, I had a long day at work. <laughs> Today is not the day. <laughs> so he's just trying to carry this lady home with him. And then a fucking sea serpent jumps out at him. <laughs> and he yeah. wrestles with it for barely a minute. Like he, he utterly he double fucks this thing <laughs> like, like he, he breaks the fuck out of its neck and this is where we get our orchestra stings when he's slamming its head against the floor um but amid all of this uh, we do see that jack is hot on hot on the trail and uh jack is mostly represented by a stop-motion puppet at this point it's it's kind of neat or um we'll we'll do a thing where he'll like run to the end of the frame and then he'll like a little puppet jack will pop up mm-hmm. <laughs> like like walk back into the frame so it's like he steps out of the frame and turns into a puppet um but uh we go out to like kong's balcony and uh there's another creature that shows up here kyle Wh- which one was that i guess the pterodactyl yeah it's a pterodactyl or a pteranodon one of those and <laughs> again this poor kong just can't catch a break he really can't <laughs> it's like surprising he's like he has this many forget this many problems just in a day. Like this is just a normal day for him. And he's like, I gotta kill a lot of motherfuckers just to get home, you know? Actually, that's a very good point. Like think think about it. It's like what what about the like nothing suggests that this is out of the ordinary for him. Yeah. Like even his reactions, he doesn't seem terribly surprised by any of this. I guess this is just life on Skull Island. Every fucking day with you motherfuckers. Every fucking day. <laughs> Every uh, goddamn day. <laughs> this is where we get uh, Kong taking off Anne's clothes. Um, I don't even want to describe it. Like it's, it's, uh, it's hard. It's kind of hard for me to figure out exactly how they did it because it's really complex. Like we have, uh, you see Kong holding her, but it's like superimposed to where the hand lines up. So it's like actually the actress in like this big giant hand, but the hands connected to uh, what looks like I think the the. Um, the the thing that we're using for the stop motion on Kong, and you can just at first you don't even notice it, but when you look closely, you can see like the uh, where it's cut out basically, where you can see that there's a screen right there uh, against the rock face, but it's very hard to pick out. Yeah, uh, it's it's 
truly remarkable stuff and Kyle and I were talking about this before we started recording oddly enough this this sequence was excised from the censored well, version of this film yeah. it's understandable because she's showing her skivvies you know <laughs> but um, at the same time it's like this is probably the most complex effect shot in the entire movie it's incredible yeah it's really well done and everything you described is pretty accurate to how it was done and there's one small note i want to say about rear projection in this film that um kind of blew my mind i didn't know this until i dug a little bit deeper because i've you know rear projection you don't have to be a genius if you've ever seen a james bond movie and you've seen sean connery do this uh uh-huh. like, You've seen, or an episode of Seinfeld for that matter, you've seen a version of rear projection. Um, but one one example of how they used it in this film, in particular with a lot of the sequences where Kong is fighting something and Anne is also in the shot, as represented by Fay Ray acting, uh, as opposed to a puppet, which is oftentimes the case. Um, they actually had like a cutout mat of a rear projection screen and they were moving the frames of it so they they had already shot the footage of the live actor doing the performance and they they'd advanced the frame of it in time with the movement of the of the stop motion prop so they were like animating in time with the playback of the footage but it was as represented by like a physical picture <laughs> like from the film like a single cell from the film strip it was really cool to watch but um yeah this uh this sequence where he's taking off her clothes is, is really amazing stuff if you if you're at all curious about like not antiquated but just like interesting uh effects work from a different time um but yeah a, a random ter- pterodactyl shows up <laughs> and it distracts kong just long enough and actually there's kind of a theme i think that's more uh, it's expanded upon like everything else um <laughs> in the peter jackson version um, where I think Kong has a thing in that movie where he doesn't do th- well with things that fly. Mm. <laughs> so, so by the time we get to the end of the movie, like it, it kind of makes sense that his his ultimate end would come at the hands of flying machines, because I think they had like bats or something in that movie instead of a pterodactyl, where it's like a swarm of bats and it gives him a hell of a time. <laughs> um, um, but yeah, this pterodactyl goes down pretty fucking easy, but it's mostly just there to serve as a distraction for Jack to run in there and uh, run off with Anne. And they, they both end up falling, and there's this really cool sequence where Kong is like pulling them up the vines that they're crawling down, um, and they just decide to let go and jump. And <laughs> it's really funny watching the puppets fall into the water, because one of them, I swear, was about to do like a Malaram in a temple of doom and like bounce off of the cliffside because <laughs> they, they land so close to the cliffside <laughs> like you know someone fucked up that shot at least once <laughs> but um when they land in the water is when we uh, we get some uh water cleavage um that somehow miraculously got through the sensors even in the late 1930s um and then they get back to the camp so that our two heroes return to the camp where carl and uh, all the other sailors are waiting um, and we get another iconic sequence where Kong uh, busts open the gate and all the villagers run out to try to stop him. Um, and it's just this big rampage sequence where Kong is tearing up straw huts. And, uh, <laughs> I like the one guy that gets whacked by like a tree. <laughs> he like picks up a tree as a club and he just whacks yeah, this guy. <laughs> this, this was kind of weird. I'm like, uh, so he ends up busting through the door. He ends up like breaking through. It's kind of a fun scene, like him actually like trying to get in. Uh, and I like the 
the captain or whichever dude it is like, go on, everybody, come up and help. And all the all the natives are helping. And he ends up busting through. And then at one point, there's, uh, I guess it's scaffolding, uh, where the guys are sitting up at the top and they're they're throwing spears and they're getting they're getting some good shots on them. And Kong has to get like creative with how he's gonna dispatch these guys. I'm like, dude, just just bang them together. Just pick up two dudes and just smash them. And he's just like, how do I stop these guys? I'm like, you are a monster. Bite their heads off. You can do whatever you want to these guys. Get creative. Yeah, uh, it's it's kind of like playing a modern video game with like a context sensitive button inputs, where it's like you grab hold of a, a normal like no, basic goon. Where it, basically there's a thing in like in like the Xbox 360 era of games and onward, where context sensitive actions were really common. So like say for ex- well actually the Punisher game um, from like the PS2 era was rife with this stuff. So basically you'd have a situation where there's just like a basic goon. And he's like the last of an entire room of dudes that you just slaughtered the fuck out of. You like grab him by the hair and then a whole bunch of like button icons start popping up around the room. It's like choose a thing to hit this guy's head against. And it's like Kong's playing that mini game where he's like looking around the jungle and he's like, well, I got to get creative with these kills. I mean, there's people watching. (laughs) There's people watching. (laughs) It's like I can't just like. Like you said, bash them together. It's like no, they all got to go in creative ways. <laughs> he might even break the fourth wall at one point. He's just like, hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's what they should totally do next time out. Is just like have him be like, "What do you think? What I do you think do? I should do?" <laughs> it's, it's I like, prefer- pre- press press one on your cellular device to have Kong throw them into the jungle. <laughs> uh, I'm actually kind of watching a little bit of Monty Python's Flying Circus, the the, the actual show. And John Cleese does the voice of the ape in uh, George of the Jungle. I'm like, now I kind of want a King Kong movie where John Cleese is doing the doing the voice of King Kong. Like, that would be a lot of fun. <laughs> well, maybe, I don't know who does the voice of a Gorilla Grodd on the Flash show, but they have a, a photorealistic gorilla with a, like superior intellect in that, in ah. that series. So may, maybe, maybe he has a British accent. Who knows? Um, but yeah, Kong just, he wrecks all sorts of shit in the village. This is where we get a whole shit ton of those censored shots where, uh, most notably him stepping on people, um, and him putting people in his mouth. Uh, he does not, he does not eat them. He doesn't consume them. He just chews them up. And the one guy gets his butt chewed. <laughs> I felt really bad for that guy. Cause you know, he's not dead. Yeah. You know, he just has a gigantic puncture wound in his asshole. <laughs> he's, I was gonna say, he's like, uh, uh, our, what's his name? The bad guy in the Jurassic World, or not Jurassic World, the Lost World Jurassic Park, where he gets Ludlow. Oh, yeah, he gets bitten or, by yeah. yeah, he gets bitten by the mama, and then just kind of basically disables his legs. I'm like, oh, that sucks, because he's just trying to crawl away. I'm like, ah, 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 ah. Dr. Malcolm! No, please! Uh. <laughs> wait! You know, that's not a very satisfying death for him. He needed something a little bit better. It's it's over-implied, I think, because I, I did, like, thematically what happened there, where it's, like, the little baby that he's been harassing the entire movie grows the fuck up and starts killing people. I want him. They should have <laughs> given him Muldoon death with the baby raptor. Yeah, yeah, that, that would have been cool. Um, yeah! <laughs> the best that's one of the best screaming deaths in movie history 
I'm still waiting for B.D. Wong to get the axe in one of those movies. Because his, his character, I can't remember if he died in Fallen Kingdom, but in the book, uh, he got he got fucking killed. He got double fucked. He'll get book. something stupid or he'll get some like, uh, like some awesome, like not awesome death, but like some kind of heroic death. They won't give him something good. Yeah, I, I I would expect that he may be dead already because I barely remember Fallen Kingdom. It wasn't that good, but uh, nice. in the book, he, he gets yanked out the window by a raptor when he thinks everything's cool, and it, and he gets eviscerated. I've got to <laughs> I, I, I got to reread that book. Ugh. Yeah, he, he was alive when they started to eat him. When they started to eat him. <laughs> but anyway, Kong uh, rampages through this village, and uh, we get to the beach, and we're, like, hopping into the skiff. So we're getting ready to head back to the ship. Um, but Denim uh, has them throw some uh, sleep gas grenades that they brought with them, uh, which they used to put down the Stegosaurus earlier in the film. So we see how potent they are. Um, and at the beach, uh, they get him with one exactly one of these gas grenades and he just goes out like a light oh he's like will ferrell in old school just <laughs> <laughs> wait 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 what wait what this is okay so... you're you're crazy this <laughs> I, I like you but you're, you're crazy <laughs> this seems like a good time to highlight the jurassic parkness like where like spielberg definitely got a lot of inspiration but it's not like ripping it off but like just little things like um when uh when the when the chin guy ends up saving Anne from Kong and they're like scaling the cliff on the rope, I'm like, that's Doctor Grant and uh, Lex. Lex, yeah, yeah, going down the side. Uh, we also have, let's see here, we have foot trample. Yeah, we have uh, from the Lost World from, Carter. From Carter, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I'm gonna use the little girl's room. Um, I had a couple more here. I put my notebook away because I don't have any more notes <laughs> for the rest of the film. Funny enough. <laughs> uh, I was just in it at that point. Uh, well, it's on a remote island. Uh, foot stomp. I mean, there's dinosaurs. That's the other one. But the tranquilizer is the other one uh, that comes up in the second one. It's a big one in the second one. Yeah, uh, you could you could easily make the case for the entire finale of King Kong basically being redone for the Lost World just with a T Rex instead of a giant yeah. ape. Yeah, pretty much. It's, yeah, that's too it, easy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and it needs to be said that I told you this before we started recording. If you've read the Lost World book by Michael Crichton, the movie is not representative of that book at all. Um, not at all. Um, that movie gave us more Dodson. Dodson, we got Dodson here. <laughs> but uh, yeah, they they bear no resemblance to each other. So that was more than likely someone handing a script to steven spielberg and him being like oh i like king kong and they're like actually it, it's an independent script it has nothing to do with kong it, it's king kong. it's king Shut kong up <laughs> so, but um yeah there's a lot of references to king kong in the jurassic park films um in particular like i said the final act of both films but um yeah kong takes a big nap and uh carl starts a uh, speechifying about how we have a million we have a million dollar opportunity on our hands i'll share it with all of you boys and uh we just very quickly do like a crossfade to new york like Times square or something boys he's and, not sharing any of that money with you <laughs> <laughs> that that's the thing that's interesting about denim's characterization um is that he's he's never portrayed as like they never lends him in such a way where he's meant to seem like a a scoundrel or a dick i know yeah I but mean, he's he should, not sharing he should, that money <laughs> yeah i i know you're, you're right it's just, it's just kind of a curious thing because again if you hadn't seen this film and you just knew the like the bare bones plot structure of it 
you would assume that this character would be a complete asshole. Yeah. Like, um, it needs to be said, uh, Charles Grodin plays the same character, basically, in the 70s version. And Ooh. he gets, com- he gets like, decisive comeuppance. <laughs> like, like, he's represented as a dick in that film, and you, the audience, are expecting something bad to happen to him. He gets the Spielbergian uh, spike killing, as I like to call it. Like, if you do bad things to people in Spielberg movies, you will die for it. <laughs> more, more than likely, that's the case, at least in his more crowd-pleasing films. But, yeah, Denim is never really shown to be a complete asshole. Um, he's wrong-headed in some ways but he's very 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 passionate and he's also shown to be very very brave which uh really solidifies the argument of this character being a stand-in for the director slash producer marion c cooper um because he's shown to be like a really brave guy like he apparently used to shoot his own films because his his cameramen were meek or something <laughs> like they like he he said like i stared down a cha- like a charging rhino and they were too afraid to film it because um, they're smart because <laughs> they're smart um but it's kind of neat having him say that earlier in the film and then having basically the same situation come up with the stegosaurus um and uh jack black's uh, version of this character is a little bonkers um, well it's jack black <laughs> you should expect that yeah. but the the way they the way they spin his version of the character is that um him bringing Kong to New York is an act of desperation where he legitimately is trying to make a film that all, all of the forces in the universe seem to not want him to be able to do. And then uh, a constant theme during the skull Island sequences of that film is that uh, he's still trying to make the fucking movie. Mm. And I think by the end of it, uh, like some dinosaurs break the camera or something and the film gets exposed to light. So like all the, all the, attempts to make a film are ruined so him bringing kong back to the states is like him trying to salvage a shit show yeah um so like he he has a maniacal bent to him that seems to be like him just trying to make the best of a shit situation but anyway uh we get back to new york and uh, we have this big public unveiling of kong and this is another iconic sequence where denim uh has kong suspended on this giant steel platform he's all shackled and whatnot and uh, Ann and Jack are there. By the way, they're engaged. <laughs> yeah. She's falling up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no shit. Yeah. Um, but uh, Denim debuts Kong. Like it, They unveil the curtains. And uh, by the way, all the people in the audience paid without knowing what they're going to see. Yeah. I mean, they're putting on the Ritz dressed up. Like, we're in tails. Yeah, no joke. Like, everybody is dressed to the nines. And everybody in the audience is asking each other like do you do you know what we just paid for and it's like no do you don't you it's like no it, it, i just i thought it was a movie it's it's not a movie what what is it uh, probably it's probably really expensive too yeah no th- this was probably not cheap um i think denim cites a number figure for just like just this one live gate and it's 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 up there for 1930s money but anyway they pull back the curtain and we get the debut of kong the eighth wonder of the world um that's a really cool catchphrase i don't actually know what all the other seven wonders of the world are but i think they're mostly architecture one of them was probably sliced bread <laughs> it should be yeah. <laughs> um a sandwich anyways. what's a sandwich you take two pieces of a bread you put meat and cheese in it huh. <laughs> mind blown <laughs> <laughs> um but things things turn to shit uh when denim invites the press onto the stage to take photos of yeah. the giant gorilla and uh the flash bulbs 
set him off something fierce and uh he tears through those uh steel chains and he breaks loose and uh kong goes on a fucking rampage in the streets yeah. of new york yeah uh <laughs> i like the i don't know what his logic is uh in destroying the the subway platform and the railing uh but he's just like he gets outside he's just like ah, ah just biting at this thing and there's a train coming it's like he knows what's gonna happen uh, I think Christopher Nolan used this as inspiration for uh, Batman Begins <laughs> because this is how Ra- Ra's al Ghul gets it. Uh, but I-, I like this little sequence. Uh, the train is coming, and I like the Dick Tracy matte painting. Like it makes New York look like a mega. Like the buildings are huge, but I don't know why I, I like that in movies. I like when they do that. Yeah, you ever seen Batman the Animated Series? That's what they make. I love it. That's yeah. what they make New York look like in this movie. I love it's it. pretty fucking cool. We have a Gotham building in Seattle. It's in so it's in uh near the International District. You can see it on I-5 going south and it has that that track light, not track light. Yeah. Yeah, it's got that really great lighting. You know what I'm talking about? It's that that building. Is it Smith Smith Tower? It might be. Let me let me look it up. But I, every time I leave the city at nighttime, I'm just like, oh, I fucking love it because it reminds me of that. It reminds me of like something you see in Gotham. Yeah, um, if it's Smith Tower, um, that was at one point the tallest building in Seattle. Um, and I forget when it was built, but it has a slightly antiquated style to it. It's it's cool looking. It's it's not Smith Tower. No, it's it's a smaller building. It's more square. It's okay. It's on the left side, moving going south. It's on like the left side. Like it's like one of the last buildings you see leaving Seattle. I gotta find it. Okay. Well, uh, yeah. The the train sequence is one of the highlights of this rampage uh, through the streets of New York. Actually, I think. I think it's the biggest highlight, but maybe, like, the... Man, there's a lot of cruel deaths in this movie. Um, Maybe the cruelest death in this movie. The lady? Yeah. Dude, I wrote it down. That was my last note. It was like, he just killed a woman. I didn't think you could do that in movies at this time. Like, the, uh, <laughs> like it either had to be, like, I tried watching the Maltese Falcon. Jesus. Uh, <laughs> it is not the right move for that, man. Uh, but like in like noir films, it's like my sister died. Like it's already happened. Like yeah. we're not actually yeah. seeing it. Yeah, no, this is particularly brutal. Um, just just in how casual it is, um, and how how like invasive uh, the actual killing is. So basically, Kong breaks out of the theater, and Anne and Jack both escape, and he takes her up to like their hotel room or something. And he's like, it's okay, darling. We'll be fine. Uh, that giant gorilla ain't going to get in here. He's going to get in He's going to get in there. <laughs> but um, Kong goes rampaging around town, and he starts climbing buildings and peering into windows. And we get this like perspective shot of him looking up at a woman uh, who's looking down at the street at all the chaos unfolding. And she screams at him, much like Anne had done on the island. Uh, so it plants the seed in his head that's like, oh, uh, that lady that was on the stage with me just a couple seconds ago is probably nearby. I should look for her because I liked her. Um, and he starts climbing the buildings and peering into windows. And he comes across a woman who is asleep in bed. And he just reaches in and picks her up out of bed. And what's to add insult to injury when when the giant mechanical hand is pulling her out the window, the actual physical prop, she's like upside down. Yeah. <laughs> so he has no respect for her like her orientation or anything of that nature so that right there is like really cruel and invasive and then he pulls her out the window and she's like squirming in his hand 
and he just casually drops her because he's like, oh, wrong lady. <laughs> <laughs> this is a brunette. Yeah, no, no joke. It is a brunette. Yeah. So he just looks at her and he's like, nope, you're not the one. And he just he doesn't even like throw her or anything. He just like lets her go yeah. and keeps climbing. And we get a sh- we sh- she gets Hans Grubert. <laughs> like we like we get one of those shots <laughs> yeah we get one of those shots except for the poor ladies upside down and by the way she was asleep yeah imagine waking up to that i'd be so pissed <laughs> you'd be more than that man you'd probably be shit dead your pants. Yeah. <laughs> and dead at pissed, the same time pissed off shit my pants dead yeah. <laughs> and dead <laughs> um, but yeah i always thought that that was like incredibly cruel um, to that poor woman um and i seem to remember the peter jackson movie um just like every sequence in that movie um made that into a th- whole scene where he like does that to more than one woman <laughs> yeah it's pretty fucking bad i mean th- i gotta say something about i watched that sequence by the way uh the the bug sequence that's yeah it's a cgi nightmare but it is a nightmare nonetheless. Uh, it's. Did you watch it with sound, though, is the question. No, I didn't watch it with sound. Okay, that's the difference maker. Okay. Um, yeah, so Peter Jackson, uh, for some reason, does like to take his time. Uh, and I think that really, really works for the Lord of the Rings movies because there's a lot to cover. We got a lot of bases to cover. This is a huge fan base. King Kong, I'm like, dude, it's really simple. Like, he finds the girl, they take him to New York, and he wreaks havoc. Like... You don't have to spend a lot of time, so I don't know if I'm ever going to get back to that King Kong, that 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 Peter Jackson King Kong. I'm probably there's probably a director's cut that's like three and a half hours long. There's like thirty minutes of extra shit. Probably, I would not and be surprised. It's incredibly self indulgent. It's very excessive. Um, I appreciate it for the special effects work, um, much much like this movie, the 1933 version. Um, just seeing the special effects wizardry is enough to keep me interested. Uh, because Andy Serkis really put on a show with the performance capture for King Kong. he I mean, he portrays King Kong. Oh, I didn't realize um, that. Yeah. Um, Man, he did that, everything. Yeah. Um, and I think Toby Kebbell, of all people, uh, portrays uh, the Skull Island version of Kong. Toby Kebbell? Uh, a British guy. He was in uh, one movie that we covered, actually. It was, uh, was it the Ridley Scott movie we did a long time? The Counselor. He has a very, very, very small role in that. Is uh, he the is he the dude rock and roller? Uh, yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. I know you're talking about the guy yeah, with the teeth. Gen- oh, gen- yes, 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 yes. I remember him now. I generally don't like him as an actor. He's in Skull Island yeah, as one I of the soldiers, him. but he also does the performance capture for Kong in Skull Island, and he also play uh, plays the antagonist in those last two uh, Planet of the Apes movies, the Koba, the evil chimp. Oh, oh, that's him. That's yeah. Those movies See, are great. That, that's the thing is like I don't particularly like him as an actor, but as a performance capture actor, that guy's got some moves. I, I will give him all the credit in the world for his ape acting. <laughs> it's funny. Two, there are two scenes that I always come back to with the counselor. One is that scene with him at the the racetrack or wherever they're they're having uh, brunch or whatever. Yeah. And uh, when Brad Pitt says he'll have a. Uh, I'll have a double Mylox with a side of Oxycontin. It's, you you have said that to me several times. I don't know why that's just the funniest. Like, what, what can I get you to drink? A hemlock. <laughs> yeah, 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 I remember that. I don't know. Uh, the, the, uh, the, the Irish brogue came back for just a second when he said that one. But, um, yeah, uh, Peter Jackson, King Kong, I won't defend it as a as a film, but just in terms of special effects work, 
it's a lot of cool shit in there if you're into that and i am so it works for me mostly um but yeah uh kong's bag of tricks here the 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 sub the uh l train sequence is probably the biggest showstopper in the new york sequence aside yeah. from the planes um i like that uh a train passes him and like pisses him off and that's what that's what <laughs> uh-uh. causes him <laughs> yeah. yeah no no joke that's how that sequence begins it's like he's he's got Anne and he's thinking about what to do he's like oh, it's a building i should probably climb that and then <laughs> and he's like motherfuck you scared Fuck me you. but it's already gone but the tracks are still there, so he just starts busting up the tracks. And then he sees the light coming from the other train coming. And he's like, oh, I, I need to see this. So he sticks around. And then it crashes. And then we get the sequence that I don't know how bad the violence is supposed to be here. But if it's as bad as it looks, uh, these people are turned into chunky salsa. Yeah, it's Because he just, he just hammer fists the fuck out of this train car. <laughs> and all the people inside, we keep cutting to shots of them being like smushed against each other. And I think it's implied that they just got turned into red goo. Yeah, they got gooed. <laughs> in fact, we see some little puppet guys falling out the window on the bottom side of the train car. <laughs> it's pretty great. Um, but anyway, uh, we get to, <laughs> we get a really stupid scene where Kong is he's starting his iconic climb up the Empire State Building, which it. at the time was the tallest building in New York. I know. Uh- I, I don't know why like it's the most iconic sequence it might be the most iconic sequence from a film in history mm-hmm. but it yeah. looks so cool it's amazing it, it's a really cool idea whoever came up with this idea as the finale to a film hats off to you sir madam whatever um, you did good <laughs> um but <laughs> what's really funny <laughs> so we're, we're at like a police station and uh, jack and denim are at the police station they're like well what do we do <laughs> he's like well he's the giant gorilla's got your gal and she's crying he's climbing that building it's like we can't get to him up there that's way too high and he's like well, what about planes <laughs> and he's like that's a good idea <laughs> and then they all they literally run out of the office like the chief of police like hops out of his seat and he's like that's a good idea <laughs> <laughs> you just thought of that you dipshit <laughs> yeah there's just this awkward silence it's like oh He's got your gal. He's up in a tall building. There's nothing we can do. And he's like, what about planes? And he's like, yeah, that's a great idea. Well, there's an idea. <laughs> and then they all run out of the fucking room. And then immediately after that, we just like do a crossfade to a bunch of biplanes taking off. <laughs> you couldn't fucking think of that? Jesus Christ. What were you thinking? Like you're just going to walk up the stairs, maybe take the elevator up there, uh, convince him to let her go? Jeez. I mean, I mean, if the fucking Ghostbusters, and that includes a kind of, like, not overweight, but, like, kind of in between Dan Aykroyd, can, can climb the stairs up to the top of the Gozer building, I, I think New York's finest can do it if they really apply themselves. Oh, 80%. Maybe need a couple of smoke breaks or a lot of smoke breaks on the way, but you know, they'll get there. 80% of Dan Aykroyd's weight is in his head. Uh, so it, are, are, it makes him more difficult to walk up the stairs anyway. <laughs> God, I love that. He's got a huge fucking head. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> He's got quite the noggin. Uh, but um, anyway, this brings us to the climax of the film. And actually, this sequence may as well be like a pretty solid definition of climax when it comes to cinema, like yeah. the art of cinema. This is what a climax looks like. So we have kong at the top of the empire state building and we just have these four biplanes like doing doing turns like just like zooming past him 
and uh, shooting them with machine guns. And much like the Allosaurus fight earlier in the film, uh, no music, just plain noises and growls. And uh, I think he gets only one of these planes. Uh, I think one so. Of them fly- yeah, only one of them flies too close, and he manages to like clip one of the wings, and we get a good uh, explosion before it hits the ground. <laughs> Killed him five times before he hit the floor. Um, anyway, they're doing these strafing runs on him, and, uh, you know, it's a fucking giant gorilla. Yeah. You have machine guns and flying machines. It's only a matter of time. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah, sure enough, he, he, he is mortally wounded. And uh, we see actual, like, blood pouring out of him. So that's some graphic detail there that you wouldn't get in every movie from this vintage. Um, And this is, like, maybe the only time, and this is actually a huge deviation from, like, almost every other iteration of the character. Uh, This is maybe the only instance in the entire film where we're explicitly asked to sympathize with him. Because throughout the most of the movie, he's not sympathetic like he's he's just a big rampaging beast and in fact he's kind of a monster but when he's dying here is like maybe the only time we're supposed to feel anything for him i i always it always gets me in movies rewatching um oh no country for old men there's a scene where uh Llewellyn shoots the dog, and this dog is going to fucking murder him. Like, this dog is not messing around. He ends up shooting the dog. Anytime I hear the dog, like, you hear the squeak, it's just like, oh, shit. And then you just see the dog, like, kind of panting. I'm like, that's the worst, is when you know they're mortally wounded and still alive. And I don't know how they make it work for big monsters. It's pretty crazy how they can do that. Like, in Godzilla 98, like, at the end, you're just like, kind of feel shit i kind of feel bad for him you know but dude you did a maybe you do kyle (laughs) i mean you did cause a lot of property damage but uh yeah like i kind of feel bad at the end or the what's that shitty disgusting thing in uh return of the jedi what's that oh the rancor yeah the rancor you feel you feel bad for him yeah i mean especially because his trainer is his parent essentially is just crestfallen that that fat man is weeping yes yes he he is he is inconsolable. <laughs> <laughs> no, that man is seriously bummed out. <laughs> I mean, like buy him a drink or three. It's a big guy. <laughs> well, he's gonna be <laughs> but, dead soon anyway. But yeah, yeah, Java's probably not gonna be happy about that. Someone's got to catch the blame. <laughs> but um, yeah, it, it, I think it's curious though because most people, including me, uh, the first time I saw this movie, I was probably in college actually. Um, for I expected. Uh, the narrative around Kong to be like, oh, you're supposed to feel bad for him. Like he's he's been taken away from his home and he's been rendered like this like beast of burden in some fashion or something. That's not really the case in this movie, not really. Um, but somehow it it got to the public consciousness that it's like, yeah, King Kong is a sympathetic figure. And by the time we get to the Peter Jackson version of the film. Oh, it's dialed up to 11. Like, we're meant to feel all the emotions for Kong. Like, we're meant to believe that Naomi Watts is ready to, like, if he put a ring on her, they'd, <laughs> they'd be a couple, like, right then and there. Like, no questions asked. Uh, um, to be honest with you, I don't <laughs> think it's going to work out. This uh, <laughs> is like, you know, physics and whatnot. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, but, yeah, in that one, the emotionality is dialed way the fuck up. And even in the 70s version, like, you're meant to feel really, really bad for him when the when 
in that one helicopters because modern times the, <laughs> the guy in the monkey suit you gotta feel bad for him yeah you're supposed to feel bad for rick baker the guy who built the suit uh, getting shot up by fucking uh, hueys um but yeah uh when when kong is finally dying here this is a thing that a lot of stop motion animators of this era seem to really enjoy doing is killing their monsters because like ray harryhausen in particular man every time his monsters die they they like do shakespearean acting <laughs> like they grab their throat yep. and they reach the to the heavens they do the willem dafoe platoon death all that kind of shit think about how time consuming it is and just like how tedious just every making every little bitty movement so when you finally get to kill it you're like okay let's kill this thing Actually, that's not a bad theory. <laughs> it's like, oh, you want me to kill this bitch? It's gonna be I'll epic. kill him. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, it's going to be a death. Yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, Kong gets some pathos when he dies here, where we see like his facial expression changes in such a way where we can see he's he's not feeling so... He's feeling a little woozy. I'm feeling a little woozy here. <laughs> he's doing some Matthew Lillard acting on the God, top of the Empire State Building. <laughs> um, and yeah, of course, he falls and... To add insult to injury, just like every fucking death in this movie, he can't just fall off the building. He has to bounce off the fucking... I was like, he's just short of having MacGruber <laughs> shooting him on the way down. <laughs> like, no joke, they cut to this wide of of, of a, a very tiny ape on a very large building, like, bouncing, like, three times off the side of it as he falls off. Yeah. It's like, oh, my God, that's so mean. But um, then we, uh, uh Jack picks up Anne, and they're presumably happily married after that. Probably not. No, it's not happily, he, but they're married. <laughs> I think he hits the bottle pretty hard. He yeah, lives at sea. He, he looks lives like at it. sea. <laughs> he's got syphilis, chlamydia, alcoholism. Yeah, I think he's got it all. Yeah, and he doesn't have the bone structure to hold his liquor all that well. So, <laughs> but, um, we we fade from them on the t- on the roof of the building down to the street level, and we see Kong's just like battered body, dead on the street. It's very much like uh, Jack Nicholson's Joker yeah. minus the. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and Denim like finds his way over to the beast, and he parts the crowd, and uh, I think the police commissioner or whatever. Uh, gives him a little talk and we get the very iconic ending line of like well uh, the plane's got him and he's like no it was beauty killed the beast and then end i i've had this come up in two film classes the two two of the film classes i've taken uh where we have to talk about this in quote and how amazing it was and i'm just like i don't get it it's not that big of a deal i know it's an iconic line but i'm like so what well what what you need to have is you need to have ernest p whirl like in the crowd be like no i'm pretty sure it was planes yeah (laughs) now yeah i'm pretty sure it was a Vern. i think it was the plane i think it was the planes (laughs) how does casablanca end is it frankly my dear i don't give a damn that's uh gone with the wind gone with the wind what's casablanca Eh, it doesn't matter Uh, uh (laughs) <laughs> it, it's chinatown <laughs> Let, let's just mix up all the movies it doesn't matter <laughs> it's chinatown yeah that's good. yeah f- forget it kong it's chinatown <laughs> yeah. uh but yeah that was 1933 king kong um obviously we had a lot of fun watching this one uh, it's very easy for me to go back to mostly because it's just a visual effects thrill ride like once you get once you get through the journey to skull island like it really just becomes kong's movie and he's he's 
always killing or smashing something yeah. <laughs> and and there's like especially the uncensored cut which seems to be the primary cut of the film these days like there's so many what the fuck moments where it's like if you're even casually paying attention you'll have a good time probably so some people have i guess reactions to paintings where you just feel something and you don't know why you feel that like you just have a, like an emotional reaction I didn't watch this movie until I was an adult, and this last time, like, watching it, I think, last night or the night before, I had, like, a weird nostalgia, like, nostalgia feeling that came up, and I couldn't put my finger, it's very strange, and it was like I was watching a movie that I watched when I was a kid, I feel like it was that kind of reaction where I'm just like, I don't know where this is coming from, but it feels good, so it was just kind of interesting that that happened to me. Yeah, I, I got a very similar vibe, actually. I think it's just the style of presentation, where like, the music in particular has that old-timey feel to it, where everything's a little too big for its own good, but you, it makes you smile anyway. Yeah. It's like, that doesn't, that doesn't fit. That's a, little, that's a little excessive, but it's like, that's how things were, so fucking deal with it. Yeah. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> and then, of course, the novelty factor of like the stop-motion is certainly think that it's something that's timeless and for me actually like like i said i didn't actually sit down to watch the film in its entirety until i was about like college age um but when i was a kid i've mentioned this before on the show i had a vhs tape that was a a collection of trailers for these kinds of movies um from like the 1930s through the 1960s um so that would include godzilla movies and stuff but it was just a vhs tape that was just a collection of trailers from those old b-movie monster movies and that was my introduction to so many of these movies like them they had a trailer for that Uh, the giant claw was on there the beast from Twenty Thousand fathoms um this island earth was on there i think 20 million miles to earth like all these ray harryhausen type movies and stuff and they had a trailer for king kong which because it was a 1930s trailer was basically the whole fucking movie. (laughs) So I saw that, I watched that tape multiple times when I was like nine, ten years old. So in some ways, it may as well be me like watching this movie back then. Um, But yeah, it it, something about this character, I think it, it, this film, it it certainly resonates with children, I think. Uh, There's just something about the flow of it and the, just the, all all gas no breaks nature of the like the halfway mark of the movie maybe where it's like i would say maybe that maybe there's something to that like i think maybe reminding us of the like stop motion that we saw as kids but yeah also the all gas no breaks about the the skull island portion well yeah and there's something to be said for like like you say what you will about the overall quality of jurassic world as a film but like the final the final sequence in that film, the the raptor and the T-Rex versus the Irex, I got a huge smile across my face watching that because, like, part of me, I have a friend who uh, routinely has a catchphrase he uses where he says, it's so stupid! <laughs> <laughs> and oftentimes it comes out when we're watching movies, uh, most notably during, um, what was it, The Last Jedi? Oh. <laughs> oh. Or, no, no, it was, uh, no, it was Rise, Rise of Skywalker. Skywalker. Yeah, oh. it was Rise of Skywalker. I love I was, that movie. <laughs> I, I kept turning to him in the theater, and I was like, he's going to say it. And he said it so many times. Dude, that's the best uh, sequel. <laughs> it's the best of the subsequent Star Wars movies. Wow. It's so uh. stupid. It's so stupid. <laughs> it's so stupid. It really is so stupid, but it's a lot of fun. But yeah, there, there's a there's a phrase in Japanese, uh, kawaii sou ni, or kawaii sou, where it's basically it basically means cute 
but in a path- like pathetic but in a cute way where mm. it's endearing it's like it's like when a puppy falls down it's like oh yeah and and that's that's what it's so stupid is for where it's like this is so fucking stupid but but i'm still smiling yeah and and jurassic world while i was getting out with that is that sequence reminded me of being a little kid making stop motion films with my Jeff Goldblum and my Pete Postel toy toys. <laughs> I was like, this is literally someone opening their toy box of CGI monsters and smashing them into each other. Yeah. And that's that's what King Kong is. Mm-hmm. Is it's it's a grown man Doing <laughs> smashing this, yeah. smashing his toys together and spending three years of his life or whatever doing that. And you can tell that he had fun doing it and I had fun watching it. Yeah. Um but yeah, that being said um, this is our March of the Monsters month, uh, so this is the first of many Kong and Godzilla reviews that we'll be doing this month, hopefully culminating with a review of Godzilla vs. Kong, which I believe drops March 31st. But in the meantime, if you would like to catch up on any of our other catching up on cinema content, uh, you can find all of that collected on our website at Catching Up on Cinema. Uh, we also have a couple of social media accounts in the form of an Instagram at Catching Up on Cinema as well as a Twitter, at Catching Cinema. And the show is also hosted on pretty much every podcasting platform you can imagine, so feel free to Google us or whatever. Um, But that being said, thank you so much for listening, and we will catch you next time. But the cream will rise to the top. Oh, yeah. Now I'm on my way. Oh, yeah.